Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Craig Roberts, author of Crosshairs on the Kill Zone, American Combat Snipers, Vietnam through Operation Iraqi Freedom, wrote in that book, the sniper must not be susceptible to emotions such as anxiety and remorse. Simo Hawaha, aka the White Death, didn't fight in Vietnam or Operation Iraqi Freedom or any skirmish in between. He wasn't American, but he was a sniper and he was not susceptible to emotions like anxiety or remorse. He seemed physically incapable of feeling either one of those. He was a small, soft-spoken, reclusive Finnish farmer. He was a man who prior to a tragic war accident that left his face severely disfigured, you wouldn't look at or think about twice. You definitely wouldn't think the slight, nondescript, five-foot-three tops guy was anything to worry about. But he was something to worry about. Put a gun in his hand and he was a one-man murder machine. He brings to mind another quote. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight and the dog. Well, holy hell, when it came to shooting Russian, Simo was made out of nothing but fight. Fitting for a legend, in almost every documentary or video or article written about Simo Hawaha, experts pronounce his name differently and assign him a different number of kills. The more you dig into the details about his life, the more of a mythological quality his life begins to take on. And we explore the myth, the legend, and the man of Simo Hawaha today on a Killing in the Name of Veterans Day edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday and happy Veterans Day, Meat Sacks. And happy birthday to my wife, Lindsay, queen of the suck. She turns 22 today. Uh, no. But it, it, she looks she looks 22 today. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, the sultan of the suck. Sucks Tradamus, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise be to Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. Recording this in advance of the Denver shows, where I'm going to guess I had a great time. As of recording this, I think five of the six shows already sold out, so thank you, Denver. 
Uh, gang's all here. The priestess, the high priestess, the scriptkeeper, the queen of the suck, the reverend doctor, horsecock paisley, sweetening the sounds. Only a couple weekends of touring left for 2019. I'll announce the 2020 date soon. Follow me on Instagram, Dan Cummins Comedy, to really keep track of that more. Uh, Dr. Grins in Grand Rapids. Yeah, it's uh, Michigan, November 21st to the 23rd. Another live time suck on the 23rd. Tacoma Comedy Club. And of course, Tacoma, Washington, December 5th to the 7th. Last live suck of the year on the 7th. Last stand-up shows of the year. The Spokane Comedy Club, December 26th to 28th. Spokane, Washington, where my stand-up career began uh, more than a couple years ago. A reminder that in honor of Veterans Day and because of all of our military listeners, we're giving $3,500 this month to the Patriot Guard Riders. Yes, the Patriot Guard Riders are Charity of the Month. 100% volunteer, 501c3. Started back in 2005 in response to those pieces of shit. Uh, and I feel like that's, uh, you know, an insult to shit. Uh, the Westboro Baptist Church. Their mission is to ensure dignity and respect at memorial services, honoring fallen military heroes, first responders, honorably discharged veterans, right? To, to be a little blockade in between the people doing ridiculous protests at veterans' funerals and the veterans' families. You can ride with them in a funeral procession, just help stand guard at the funeral itself. You can be active military, veteran, or someone who's never served. To learn more, donate yourself, go to patriotguard.org. Speaking of the military, we have a new Time Suck Challenge coin hitting the store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The In Suck We Trust coin, a standard one-inch and three-quarters size brass challenge coin, electroplated with antique gold. Comes in a little velvet pouch you could use later to collect the teeth of your enemies if you so wish. Uh, I've heard these coins, maybe they heat up when con artists, religious charlatans, other wackadoodles are nearby to alert you that a dangerous bullshit wizard is nearby. These coins are proof uh, in challenge coin form that you are a member of the cult of the curious. So hail fucking Nimrod. And in honor of Veterans Day, a uh, little quick mini suck on the history of challenge coins. Uh, whether you get one or not, I think it's cool to know what they are. And sorry, Space Lizards, I know I already talked about this on Thursday's Secret Suck, but it's worth repeating. I want more people to hear about uh, challenge coins just in general. Uh, so the challenge coin goes back to ancient Rome and the legionaries. Legionaries were the Roman infantry. And if a soldier performed well in battle, you know, uh, on, on you know the day of the battle, he would receive his typical day's pay. And sometimes a separate coin is a bonus. And some accounts say that this coin was specially minted uh, on certain occasions with the mark of the legion from which it came, prompting some men to hold onto these coins as mementos rather than spend them. Uh, today, challenge coins are used by those in the military in a variety of ways. Some coins are, are given out, you know, in appreciation for a job well done. Some are given to those who served as part of a specific military operation, recognition for the fact that they were one of the few that were actually there. Sometimes they're handed out kind of like business cards, uh, you know, can be added to challenge coin collections, just, you know, sold, like handed out as collectibles. Sometimes soldiers can use coins kind of like ID badges to prove that they served with this particular unit or that particular unit. Uh, still other coins handed out to civilians for publicity. Some sold as part of fundraising efforts. In America, some challenge coin enthusiasts think the origin of the challenge coin over here can be traced to World War I. A legend has it a wealthy officer had bronze medallions struck with his flying squadron's insignia to give to his men. Shortly after doing that, one of his young pilots gets shot down over Germany, gets captured. The Germans took everything from this pilot except this little small leather pouch he wore around his neck that happened to contain that medallion. And then he escaped, made his way to France, where the French thought he was a spy. They were going to execute him in an effort to prove his identity. This pilot presented this medallion and a French soldier happened to recognize the insignia. The execution was delayed long enough for the French uh, to confirm his identity and then send him back to his unit. Pretty cool. 
one of the earliest, maybe the earliest, you know, examples of a challenge coin being minted was uh, the challenge coins minted by Colonel Buffalo Bill Quinn, 17th Infantry Regiment, had them made for his men during the Korean War. Coin features a buffalo on one side as a nod to its creator, and then the regiment's insignia on the other side. A hole was drilled in the top so the men could wear it around their necks instead of, you know, holding it in a leather pouch. And then the challenge part of the challenge coin, that part is thought to have originated in Germany shortly after World War II. Americans stationed there took up a local tradition of conducting Fennig checks. The Fennig is the, was the lowest uh, denomination of coin in Germany. And if you didn't have one when the check was called, you were stuck buying everybody else's beer. And this evolved from a Fennig to the unit's medallion. And members would challenge each other by slamming the medallion down on the bar. And if any you know member present didn't have their medallion, then that member had to buy a drink for the challenger and every, you know anyone else that had their coin. If all the other members had their medallions, the challenger had to buy everyone else's drinks. So I think, again, super cool history. Challenge coins began to catch on, really get popular during the Vietnam War. The first coins from this era were created by either the Army's 10th or 11th Special Forces Group and had the unit's insignia stamped on a piece of regular currency, and the men in the unit carried them with pride. Prior to carrying these coins, there were bullet clubs where members carried a single unused bullet. Many of these bullets were given as a reward for surviving a mission with the idea that it was now a last resort bullet to be used on yourself instead of surrendering if defeat seemed imminent. And then, you know, carrying these bullets became this whole kind of machismo thing where dudes started getting bigger and bigger bullets to outdo each other, which started off as handgun or M16 rounds, soon escalated to 50 caliber bullets, anti-aircraft rounds, even artillery shells. Of course, it did testosterone. When these Bullet Club members presented the challenge to each other in bars, it meant they were slamming down live ammunition. And word that someone was going to kill themselves or, you know, or, or another soldier doing this, the command in Vietnam banned this practice, replaced the bullets with limited edition Special Forces coins. And then soon, nearly every unit had their own coin. Some even minted commemorative coins for especially hard-fought battles to hand out to those who lived to tell the tale. Now, sometimes I'm given a, a challenge coin via a handshake where the coin is palmed by the presenter, snuck over to me. I think that's really cool. Where did that tradition come from? Maybe not that long ago. Maybe as recent as 2011. June 2011, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates toured military bases in Afghanistan before his impending retirement. Along the way, he shook hands with dozens of men and women in the armed forces and what was to the naked eye, you know, just looked like a simple exchange of respect. In fact, it was a secret handshake with a little surprise, you know, for the recipient, a special Secretary of Defense challenge coin. Pretty cool. Now, a lot of challenge coins are given out that way. And outside of the U.S., this tradition may go back a lot farther than 2011. It could have originated in the Second Boer War, fought between the British and South African colonists at the turn of the 20th century. The British hired many soldiers, soldiers of fortune for that conflict, mercenaries. And due to their mercenary status, they were unable to earn medals of valor. Not unusual, though, for the commanding officer of those mercenaries to receive the accommodation instead. Stories say that non-commissioned officers would often sneak into the tent of an unjustly awarded officer, cut the medal from the ribbon. Then in a public ceremony, they would call the deserving mercenary forward and palming the medal, shake his hand, pass it to the soldier as a way of indirectly thanking him for his service. And in the last 10 years or so, these things have kind of exploded, these challenge coins. Lots of organizations use them now. Uh, many non-military have gotten into it, you know, organizations. Uh, and there's like, you know, a lot of governmental organizations. White House aides have their own coin, as does the Secret Service, the Boy Scouts, uh, various police and fire departments, various other civic organizations, Star Wars cosplayers, podcasts like Time Suck, et cetera. And, uh, and we've had one before. And what does it mean to, uh, to me? 
uh, you know, just means like, uh, you know, you're you're showing that you're a card-carrying member of the Cult of Curious. I said that once, card-carrying member. We don't have cards, but we have coins. And, and there's there's the backstory. There's a little bit of extra military information today on our Veterans Day. Now maybe you know about uh, challenge coins. And also before we get into to SEMO, a uh, little extra Veterans Day info for, for U.S. veterans. A lot of people think it's Veterans Day uh, with an apostrophe. Nope. There's no apostrophe. The holiday doesn't belong to one veteran or multiple veterans, uh, which is what a, an apostrophe would imply. It's a day honoring all veterans, so no apostrophe in Veterans Day. Also, Veterans Day, not Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a time to remember those who gave their lives for our country, particularly in battle or from wounds they suffered in battle. Veterans Day honors all of those who served the country in war or peace, dead or alive, although it's largely intended to thank living veterans for their sacrifices. So thank you, veterans. Uh, it was originally called Armistice Day, commemorating the end of World War I. That's why it's on November 11th. Uh, World War I officially ended when the Treaty of Versailles was signed on June 28th, 1919. However, the fighting ended about seven months before that, when the Allies in Germany put into an effect an armistice on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Okay. And I, and I know today's subject is not an American veteran, obviously. But we have a lot of listeners who are not Americans. And personally, I respect veterans from all over the world. Men and women who sacrifice for their respective countries' militaries. All heroes. So now let's go to Finland and honor one of these heroes today. One of Finland's greatest military heroes, if not the greatest. I'm not a veteran, but I imagine all veterans would hold this bad motherfucker in pretty high regard. So on this episode of Time Suck, yeah, we have our sights set on a man known as the greatest sniper of all time. Legendary Finnish sniper, Simo Hawaha. And again, I say the pronunciation, it really is like every, uh, if, I'm, if you think I'm getting his name wrong because it's something you've watched, watch about 10 other videos. And you're like, oh, they, they say it. And then do some pronunciation things. They say it differently in so many different videos. Uh, and Finnish in general, I know we have some Finnish listeners. I'm going to fuck your language up uh, because, you know, there's not a lot of pronunciation guides for, for a lot of Finnish towns, little geographical places. So apparently English speakers just, I don't know, they don't care. So, you know, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to get my head around your strange language with lots of little dots and little circles above many of the letters. Anyway, Simo Hawaha, this man took down a record 542 kills. That's, that's the most consistent number. Without the aid of a scope, that's what's crazy to me, without the aid of a scope, plus managed to gun down several hundred more enemies with a submachine gun. Rounded out his kill count around 800, and, and this all happened in just a few months. Around 800 days. Uh, Hawaha served his country with distinction as a sniper during the conflict known as the Winter War pitting his homeland of Finland against the former Soviet Union. After the war, Simo avoided public adulation, preferring to lead a quiet, unassuming life. As he humbly remarked in one interview, you know, later in life, I did what I was told to do as well as I could. There would be no Finland unless everyone else had done the same. Like he didn't think what he did was that big of a deal, which makes me like him even more. To be sure, uh, what Simo accomplished in the war was neither easy nor pleasant. As a sniper, his duty was to kill his target, and he did that arguably better than anyone ever has before or since. We're going to first look over what it means to be a sniper before we dig into this badass mofo's life during today's Time Suck timeline. But before we even do that, we need to learn a little bit, a little bit about the relationship between Finland and Russia that led to the war he fought in, and also just learn more about Finland in general. All right, is that cool? Does that sound good? I think it's worth it. It's a pretty sweet little country. So yeah, 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 let's get on into it. The five and a half million person nation of Finland for me, and I think for many, is the forgotten Nordic country. The Nordic countries are Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, 
There are associated territories such as Greenland and the Faroe Islands. And there's also Finland and its little autonomous territory of Oland. And when I think of Finland, I think of Scandinavia. But while often listed as being part of Scandinavia, that's actually not really true. Scandinavia is really just composed of Denmark, Sweden, Iceland, and Norway. These are the four nations whose languages come from the same linguistic tree. Their histories are extremely intertwined. The land of the Vikings. Finland does often get listed, again, as part of this group. And it is part of the Scandinavian peninsula of Norway, Sweden, and Finland. But it doesn't really fit. It's definitely the odd man out here. Not culturally. More on why in just a bit. First, I I found out looking into Forgotten Finland that Finland is fucking awesome. Like the most awesome. As per the 2019 Happiness Index, Finland is the happiest country in the entire world, and it's actually a back-to-back champion locking down the top spot. The annual World Happiness Report, released by the Sustainable Development Solutions Network for the United Nations, Illuminati, uh, each year on March 20th, the date the United Nations, New World Order, uh, has declared to be the International Day of Happiness. This report ranks countries on six key variables that support well-being, that is happiness, income, Freedom, trust, healthy life expectancy, social support, and breast size. Uh, and by breast size, I mean generosity. Get out, get out of here, Lucifina. Go on. Yeah, come on. Uh, Happiness Report co-editor John Hellowell, professor emeritus of economics at the University of British Columbia, says the top 10 countries tend to rank high in all six variables, as well as emotional measures of well-being. And as for Finland, it's not just the native-born Finns who are the happiest. It's everyone, immigrants and natives alike. Super impressive. Hellowell says, it's true that last year all Finns were happier than the rest of the country's residents, but their immigrants were also the happiest immigrants in the world. It's not about Finnish DNA. It's the way life is lived in Finland. U.S., by the way, down at number 19. U.S. ranks in the top 10 in income, but 12th in generosity, only 37th in social support, down to 42nd in corruption, and surprisingly, way down at 61st in freedom. Oh my heck! Gosh dang, what about the bald eagle? That's free. That's freedom, guy. Uh, the UK's in 15th place. Canada's number nine. Australia's number 10. Our Swedish listeners, you're number eight. And our Kiwis in New Zealand uh, rocking the number, uh, rocking the number, um, uh, I think, it's, oh man, I, I, wrote, I wrote it in my notes wrong. I believe it's, uh, it's I think it's number seven. I think it's number seven. Uh, least happy South Sudan, followed by Central African Republic and Afghanistan. And also, according to a few different surveys conducted recently, Finland has the world's best educational system, has the best teacher-to-student ratios, the most overall number of passing high school students. Also, students in Finland spend relatively little time on homework, which means they're happier, right? Finnish high schoolers spend on average less than three hours a week compared to an average of over six hours a week in the U.S. And by law, I love this, teachers must give students a 15-minute break for every 45 minutes of instruction. That's so smart. I think, you know, hearing that, that's so much better than expecting kids to sit in classrooms hour after fucking hour, listening to lecture after lecture, and then wondering why they're acting up and getting in trouble come fifth period. Like, I don't like how much homework my son Kyler gets. It's too much. And a lot of it for him is just fucking busy work. Just eats up his time. You know, he could be spending, you know, bonding with his family and friends, pursuing extracurricular activities. I mean, imagine if kids got to spend 15 minutes out of class talking with their friends, getting some socialization out of their systems. What if our lessons could be condensed just to the best 45 minutes? more focused, more productive lessons than kids got to relax for 15 minutes, be kids. I wonder how many less kids would hate school if it was that done that way and more apt to continue to be curious and have a positive association with education later in life. And I say this never having run a classroom. So if you're a teacher and you're rolling your eyes right now, you know, just, yeah, 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 I, I get it. I know I'm doing some armchair classroom stuff right now. 
You know, I get that you could think like, what the fuck do I know? Not much, but it's working for Finland. So maybe there's something to it. Uh, taxes are higher in Finland than the U.S., uh, quite a bit higher, but college is free. So is healthcare. You know, basically you pay tiny doctor fees, like really like insignificant, like a couple bucks kind of doctor fees, hospital fees. For operations and long hospital stays, you're charged relative to your income to make it affordable. Uh, and taxes are super high. The income rate is roughly 51%, the highest income tax bracket bracket in the U.S., currently around 37%, but you get so much more from the government. That's what a lot of people, I think, don't understand when it comes to taxes. You know, I, I know a lot of people, I feel like a lot of people that bitch about taxes and bitch about words like, you know, like uh, certain socialist elements are the people who could use it the most, like people who can't afford healthcare, who can't afford, you know, uh, you know, paying back their fucking student loans or even going to college, paying for daycare, like fucking, you're taking more taxes from me. It's like, yeah, but if you paid more taxes, it, it, it would be more than made up for. You'd actually have more disposable income because all this other shit that's eaten away your paycheck would actually be paid for. In Finland, the average household net adjusted disposable income per capita, 2015, the, the, the most recent date on record for this uh, figure, $31,000 a year. The U.S. average, $46,900 a year. So much more. However, that average can really be thrown off by wealth disparity. I couldn't find any exact figures on the median average which uh, if you're looking into kind of, you know, stats and stuff, median, I think, is more important than average. You know, what, what, who's right in the middle? Who's, you know, right in the middle there as far as income range, not just, not just taking all of the incomes and then dividing it by the number of people, but more like, like the, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not explaining it correctly. But you, you can look into it. You can look into it. But, but, the, but the average can get thrown off by having like the upper 1% have huge incomes that pulls the average income up and so it's not truly really the average income. Like the average person doesn't make that money. Uh, where the median, you know, that is kind of like what the average person, what their money, you know, what they would make. Okay, now I feel like I'm babbling. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but you know, you're gonna have a much better life in, in Finland because you'll have healthcare, good healthcare you can actually afford. You can get a degree without accumulating, you know, the student loan debt equivalent of a fucking mortgage. Also in Finland, quality preschool and daycare is free. Uh, there's also free after-school programs for older kids. Uh, back to education, teachers get paid more in Finland than the U.S., treated with more respect, which leads to a better education for the students. Harder to become a teacher in Finland, higher standards. Teachers are treated more like college professors and the respect they receive and, you know, culturally makes them happy and teach better. Despite being way up north, getting super cold, having a super short amount of daylight in the winter, Finland is an outdoor lover's dream. The Global Wildlife Travel Index for 2009 also named Finland number one, best country in the world to travel to visit wildlife. High levels of environmental sustainability, unique and varied diversity of species, beautiful natural landscapes, has 39 national parks that cover almost uh, 75% of its land or forest areas do cover almost 75% of its land. Insider.com named Finland the number one country to travel to in the world overall in 2019. Like they're fucking crushing it. And check this out. Part, part of nabbing that top spot to travel to, Finland has this uh, policy called freedom to roam. I think this is so awesome. I think this is why it ranks so high on the freedom index. The freedom to roam policy allows, uh, you know, or gives anyone living in or visiting Finland the freedom to roam the countryside, forage, fish with a line and rod, and enjoy the recreational use of natural areas. You can enjoy one of the many national parks for free. The parks even include unlocked wilderness cabins. Anyone can stay overnight in for free. How cool is that? And I'm pretty fucking annoyed that it would be easier for me to go fishing in Finland than it is in my home state of Idaho. In Finland, you don't have to buy a fishing license permit. You don't have to buy shit. 
You have to look into what kind of fish, you know, you, you can keep. What do you have to throw back in every lake and stream? None of that. You just grab a reel and a rod, some bait, cast it anywhere that isn't private property. Sounds delightful. And then you can go pick, you know, if there's, you know, berries and stuff like that. You just do whatever. Uh, you know, if you want to go to the big national park, you don't have to pay a fee to get in. Parks are free to everybody. No one's kept out because they can't afford it. Despite not collecting those fees, their parks are not even close to being in disarray or being, you know, all littered and stuff. Now they're well cared for, clean and pristine. Another reason Finland is so happy is their obsession with saunas. No one loves steam more than the Finns. They're the biggest steam-loving motherfuckers on earth. Finland has more saunas than cars. They have a sauna ski lift in Helsinki, a Ferris wheel made out of a whole bunch of saunas. Uh, According to visitfinland.com, there's nothing more Finnish than a sauna. And many Finns don't think you can even begin to understand their culture unless you spend some considerable time with some Finns in some saunas. That's fucking dope. I want America to develop a similar focus, but with hot tubs. I want to become a hot tub country, right? At least in the northern states, like from Alaska to Maine, you know, to everywhere else uh, above the Mason-Dixon line, maybe in between where it gets cold enough to really enjoy them. Let's go hot tub crazy. Hot tub culture. Let's make the norm when you go to a friend's house. Hop into their sweet-ass hot tub. Instead of trying to have the best lawn on the block, fuck, who gives a shit? Everyone should be trying to have the dopest hot tub. You know, all that hot tub demand is going to create better and more affordable hot tubs, cooler hot tubs. Culture around is going to create, you know, cleaner hot tubs. You know, there's going to be, you know, super clean hot tub will become a point of just kind of neighborhood pride. I'm in if you're in. You know, if I didn't need to finish this podcast, I'd want to go send a hot tub right now. Also, normal for Finns to sauna in the nude. <laughs> yep. Friends, neighbors, family, whatever. Boobs out, balls out policy in the sauna. If you can't imagine sitting in the sauna naked with your neighbors some friends, well, you're probably not Finnish. Finland also ranks number one in, with sex. Yeah, fucking number one with sex. Hell, is Safina. Dr. David P. Schmidt, psychology professor who was taught at the University of Michigan, Bradley University and elsewhere, started a program called the International Sexuality Description Project back in 2000. According to his research, after studying 50 nations, he found that no one fucks like the Finns. No wonder they're so happy. When it comes to one night stands, number of partners, attitudes towards casual sex, Finland is leading the world. Also, thanks to a great food scene with an emphasis on fresh fish, fish, uh, especially salmon, lots of salmon, uh, fresh vegetables, lean meats, a lot of organic farm-to-table stuff, get a big foodie scene, all those saunas opening up people's pores, helping their skin out, cold weather, short days, eliminating a lot of laying out and tanning, cultural emphasis on having a healthy, active, outdoor lifestyle. Fins are fucking hot. They're hot. They got great skin. God, I swear this suck has not been sponsored by the Finnish Board of Tourism. I don't even have a bunch of Finnish listeners, but I'm thinking about I'm thinking about moving. I'm thinking about relocating to Finland. I'm very into Finland right now. Also, a lot of great tech jobs in Finland. They're one of the European leaders, along with Ireland, in tech-related jobs, exporting more and more tech products all the time. They're known to be reserved and quiet. I like that. I like a reserved, quiet, and polite. Reserved, quiet, polite culture. Fuck yeah. Uh, predominantly a Christian nation, specifically Lutheran. In my experience, Lutherans are super chill, tolerant Christians. So in short, they sound fucking great. So who who the fuck are these happy, steamy, hot nerds? Well, the Finns, of which there are about 8 million in the world, with over 4 million of them in Finland. Makes sense. Uh, Ethically, or ethnically, uh, the biggest group of the Baltic Finnic peoples, the Finno-Ugric peoples inhabiting the Baltic Sea area, a sea that nearly surrounds neighboring Sweden, and the area that Denmark, Germany, Poland, Russia, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia also have coastlines on in addition to Finland. More than 98% of Finnic people are either Finns or Estonians, residing in either Finland or Estonia. 
Around 1,000 BE, uh, around 1,000 BCE, their ancestors are thought to have migrated over from the east, from an ancient homeland, perhaps somewhere in northwestern Siberia. Nice. Get, the, get out. Get the fuck out of Siberia. Siberia has never ranked high on any happiness index ever. Uh, those ancestors found indigenous people already living in the area of present-day Finland, such as the Sami. Sami people that still live in northern Finland, Sweden, Norway, bit of Russia, Laplanders. This origin... Uh, primarily why the Finns are not lumped into proper Scandinavia. Scandinavians are a northern Germanic people with languages that relate to one another, but totally different than the Finns. Swedes have more in common ethnicity-wise, language-wise, with Germans than they do the Finns. Finns are not Vikings. They didn't worship the Norse gods. They had their own pagan gods. Jumala, the sky god. Uka, or Uko, the god of thunder and the harvest. Whole bunch of others. Totally separate culture. Uh, but their culture has become quite mixed with the Swedes over the last millennia and with the Russians. They're two neighbors. Finland's biggest minority ethnic group is the Swedes. Then after the Sami and the Roma people, a lot of, a lot of gypsies in uh, Finland, there are Russians. It's also worth noting the uh, Karelians. Karelia is where Simo uh, Hawaha was born. He was also ethnically Karelian. Karelia is a historical province of Finland, down in southern Finland, uh, southeastern Finland. Part of it would end up being ceded to Russia after the Winter War of 1939 and 1940, the war that Simo fought in. Uh, speak a dialect to Finnish part of the same group of people who likely migrated over from Northwest Siberia. Once they got settled in Southern Finland, they, they developed their own little subculture, separated somewhat from the rest of Finland, had their own chieftains, fought the Russians and the Finns and Swedes in various medieval battles. Religious-wise, while most Finns are Lutheran, most Karelians ended up uh, being Eastern Orthodox. And I don't want to bog all this down too much with a lot of subculture distinctions. Just important to know that they're different enough from other Finns to perhaps want some autonomy, to, to want some recognition as being their own subculture. A lot of Karelia surrounds the western half of Lake Ladoga, largest freshwater lake in Europe that now belongs to Russia, used to belong uh, partially to the Finns. 7,000 square miles, very cold water. And their land will be the, and this land, you know, will be the setting for today's timeline battles. And, and now I want to talk about the formation of Finland as a nation. It leads to the war Simo will fight in. Uh, kind of a unique formation as far as Europe goes. It's a pretty recent country. Uh, Finland does not have a very long history at all of being its own nation. For most of its hit history, its people have fallen under the control of neighboring Sweden. In the first millennia CE, the land of Finland was ruled by various chieftains who did not write about their lives or write about anything else. You know, bummer. The earliest written sources mentioning Finland come from Catholic missionaries in the 12th century. By the 13th century, the region had become part of the kingdom of Sweden. Different language, different culture, ruled by the Viking Swedes. And then from 1397 to 1523, the Kalmar Union was formed, which joined Sweden, Denmark, and Norway under a single Scandinavian monarch's rule. Finland, as part of Sweden, continued to be ruled by the Vikings, pulled into this group. When this union dissolved into a series of bloody battles for control, like national unions so often do, the Kingdom of Sweden ended up still maintaining control of Finland. And then between February 1808 and September 17th, 1809, the Finnish War was fought between the Kingdom of Sweden and the Russian Empire. Sweden and Russia fought numerous times before for control of northeastern Europe, the lands of Lake Ladoga. Sweden had become a major world power in the 17th century, kicking the asses of Denmark, Norway, Russia, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Fucking Poland! Can we not get through a single suck without them coming up? Blech! Anyways, more powerful than ever, Swedish Empire expanded enormously in the modern Baltic states, northern Germany, several other regions. And then by the beginning of the 18th century, a lot of monarchs and empires licking their Swedish-inflicted wounds, were left thinking, man, fuck Sweden! 
And they all got together and decided to give Sweden a little three against one beatdown. All right, let's see how your little sing-song language likes to get beaten by a bunch of other, well, mostly sing-song languages. Denmark, Norway, a.k.a. the Dano-Norwegian realm, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Russia, all formed a secret alliance for one purpose, to fuck Sweden up. And the long, arduous, great northern war began in 1700. For years, Sweden was winning. They beat back the Dano-Norwegian realm. They beat back the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth with a much smaller fighting force. Other nations helped each side here and there, but Sweden had a lot fewer soldiers. An initial fighting force on their side of 81,000 men compared to 260,000 for the Russians and their friends with more Russian reinforcements always coming. The theme with Russia, always sending more dudes. Sweden whooped Russia's ass uh, as well for the first decade and then held their own for, for a little bit longer, but eventually Russia's superior numbers wore them down. Russia would use numbers to their advantage in the Winter War, starring Simo Hawaha as well. It's amazing how often more numbers seem to be why Russia has historically won wars. Traditionally, their battle strategy has just been to keep throwing troops against the enemy until eventually they wear the enemy down and win despite taking way more fucking casualties than anyone else. So many examples of wars or skirmishes the Russian Empire or Soviet Union has won, quote-unquote, But to do so, they had to sacrifice so many more troops than the enemy. Historically, one of the very worst armies to be a soldier in. Go walk across fields and take castle for Russia. But sergeants, it is well fortified and they have strong tactical advantage, being able to easily spot us in open field and shoot down at us from behind fortified walls with many mounted artillery weapons. What is point? Yes, maybe they shoot you. I send 40,000 of you to walk across fields. Maybe they shoot 30,000 before 10,000 take castle. It's okay. We have only ration for no more than 20,000 men anyway. Need to thin ranks a little bit. So, you know, get to walking. Your boots are made for walking, or your boots made for me to fucking shoot you face right now. Uh, by 1721, the Great Northern War had ended with Sweden's defeat. Swedish Empire loses a lot of its newly acquired land and also loses Finland. Uh, Finland, uh, you know, right there. After this war, Sweden was still powerful. Russia considered a threat, and the two nations fought in occasional skirmishes throughout the 18th century, had an uneasy alliance when they did get along. Or I'm sorry, no, Finland, they didn't lose Finland yet. I thought I was, I didn't trust my own notes because I was thinking about the next battle. No, Finland now is right next to Russia. They lost a lot of land, got pulled back. Russia took everything up to Finland. I'm getting ahead of myself. 1807, Sweden didn't like how a new agreement was made between uh, former suck subject Napoleon of France and Russian czar Alexander I. They didn't like how it affected its maritime commerce in the Baltic Sea. So war was struck up again between the two nations, and again, Russia won. This time winning what is known as the Finnish War. Here we go. In preparations for this war, Russia had gathered a wealth of information from Finland using spies and other sources. Their level of detail was so great that Russian maps of Finland were better than the Swedish maps of Finland. Why didn't Sweden already have great maps? Well, because they didn't really give a shit about Finland. Sweden never sent its best soldiers to fight in this war. Saved them for planning an invasion into Norway. They, most, you know, they mostly just liked how Finland gave them a little bit of protection, a little bit of a buffer from being attacked by Russia. On September 17th, 1809, Russia took control of Finland. The Russians also, to be honest, they didn't really fucking care about Finland. They also just wanted a buffer state in between them and those goddamn Swedish Vikings who are always fucking with them. And then from 1809 all the way to 1917, Finland exists as the Grand Duchy of Finland, an autonomous territory belonging to the Russian Empire, a buffer state to help keep the peace between Sweden and Russia. Finland, for most of this period, retained their cultural independence, but also were subjected to quite a bit of Russification towards the end, cultural assimilation into Russia. During this period, Finland becomes a lot more Russian, a little bit less Swedish. And then in 1917, the Bolsheviks 
overthrow the czar in Russia. We talked about this at length in the Rasputin suck. Uh, talked about it even more at length. Is that a phrase? At, more at length. I don't think so, but that's what we did in the Stalin suck. The Bolsheviks would transition Russia from an empire led by a czar, basically an emperor, you know, uh, to a communist nation led by men like, you know, uh, Stalin and Lenin. Basically just different, worst kinds of emperors. Just ones that didn't pass the crown down to their kids. And on November 15th, 1917, the Bolsheviks declared a general right of self-determination for the peoples of Russia. This included the right for various territories to secede. And Finland did that immediately. That same day, Finnish parliament declared themselves their own nation. Finally, in 1917, for the first time ever, the nation of Finland is truly independent. Hail Nimrod, Finns! No longer ruled by anyone outside of Finland. Yeah, yeah, yeah! And then less than two months later, Finland experiences a brief but bitter civil war. Ah, shit. Lasts from January to May 1918. One essentially fought between people called the Red Guards, who wanted to become a, you know, socialist or, you know, communist nation like Russia. And then the White Guards, people who wanted to live in a capitalistic democratic nation. And the White Guards won. And they immediately voted to establish a constitutional monarchy to be called the Kingdom of Finland that was to be ruled by a German king. Why? Because the Germans were the ones to help the White Guards defeat the Red Guards as part of Germany's battling with Russia in World War I. So damn it, they've just barely become an independent nation. And then Germany's like, nah, nah, you're a puppet again. Now let my prince son sit on your throne. But then a few months later, Finland gets lucky and Germany loses World War I. And Finland's like, on second thought, you know what? We're not going to be a constitutional monarchy. We're going to be a capitalist democracy and we're, we're going to run shit ourselves. So fuck, fuck your prince son. Uh, and then the years between World War I and World War II, you know, Finland gets to run their own show. They get to hang for, you know, running. They become primarily a, a nation of farmers, a rural agrarian economy, focusing on logging, growing the crops, crops like wheat, rye, barley, oats, potatoes, sugar beets, various grasses for, for feeding herd animals like cattle. Finland would show up a little bit late to the Western world's industrialization party. A lot of farmers in between World War I and World War II. And Finland started to have problems with Russia almost immediately. The new communists, they didn't like having a capitalist neighbor. They wanted a communist neighbor. In 1923, former suck subject Joseph Stalin calls upon Karelian Finns to establish their own autonomous society called the Karelian Autonomous Soviet Socialistic, uh, Socialist Republic. What a fucking perfectly soulless communist name. And the Karelians from Finland, the U.S., and Canada all head out and do just that. Part of Karelia uh, lays on the Finnish side of the Finland-Russian border. The majority uh, of this lay on the Russian side, and the Russian side becomes the Karelian Autonomous so Soviet Socialist Republic. Their fucking names are so sad. Blech. And then they wanted to bring their Finnish brothers and sisters into their new little Soviet state. So the, you know, Soviets are fucking stirring the pot. You get that little group that, you know, Sima was a part of, little ethnic group, and now they have, you know, on the, on the Russian side, you know, they're really getting these guys worked up into their own little state. And then those guys wanted to have their, you know, family on the, on the Finland side be part of their little country. So, you know, that's going to lead to war. Russia wants to incorporate the rest of Karelia into this new satellite state. Finland does not want to cede any land to the communists. Hello, future border conflict. 1932, Finnish communists, backed by Russia, attempt to coup Finland. Luckily fail in their attempt to take over the capitalistic government. And then throughout the rest of the 1930s, Russia continues to antagonize Finland. They do stuff like they start limiting the navigation of Finnish merchant ships traveling between Lake Ladoga and the Gulf of Finland, totally blocking their travel. This is important commercial travel in 1937. You know, and Finland's like, you guys, stop eating, you're such dicks. Why does living in Europe have to be so fucking hard? Too many countries always fighting. Jesus, just let us grow our wheat and 
and, you know, and log our trees and catch our salmon and fuck each other in our saunas already. And a few years later, World War II begins. Hitler would eventually declare war on Stalin's Soviet Union in June of 1941. Prior to that, Germany and Russia signed an uneasy pact on August 23rd, 1939. Hitler hated communism, but he initially wanted Russia as an ally that wouldn't bother him so he could go and fuck up Western Europe. Russia wanted some more land in Eastern Europe, so the two, you know, they strike a little deal. Part of Stalin and Hitler's pact was to secretly carve up Eastern Europe into spheres of influence for each nation. Nobody bothers to tell Finland about this. After the pact is signed, you know, uh, Finland has been given by the Germans without them knowing it to, to Russia. Stalin demands military access from a number of Baltic states, including Finland. Finland knows that they let the Soviets borrow some of their land for military bases and military access. They're not going to get it back. So they're like, no, nah, no, nah, suck it. And Russia's like, no, you, you'll suck it. And Finland's like, no, nah, I, I told you first. You guys, you guys can suck it. And then Russia was like, you don't tell me what to do. You're not my mom. And then Finn was like, I fucked your mom in my sauna last night. And Russia was like, God damn it. That's it. Now you get attacked. And they didn't, of course, have that back and forth. The Russia did attack. Actually attacked itself to justify attacking Finland. Weird. More on how that went down in the timeline. And we're almost to that timeline now. First, let's go over, you know, what it means to be a sniper. So now you understand, you know, what Finland is, the, the pretext to this war Sima would fight in. Now let's talk about, you know, get an understanding of his job as a sniper. What is a sniper? Sniper is, you know, what I wanted to be off and on starting when I was maybe six or seven until I was 12 or 13. You know, just sitting up in the, in the mountains around Riggins, Idaho. They imagine some kind of Red Dawn scenario. The original Swayze version. Fuck the remake. And I know the Swayze version, the acting is atrocious. I actually just watched it again last night uh, because I got, I got, you know, thinking about it because of this suck. I, was, I had it on while I was doing research. You know, hiding up in the woods, moving from tree to tree with the young Charlie Sheen, you know, picking off advancing commie scum. Russians are coming. I have to defend my home turf to, you know, to, you know, make Jennifer Gray notice me. Wolverines! This is basically the exact reality that Simo Hawaha lived. The Russians did come. He did hide around in the trees and pick them off. He was, he was like a, the older Swayze in this scenario, but actually way more efficient than Swayze at killing Russians. Uh, usually Hollywood has to exaggerate their action stars, have the action star version of the real dude in some war movie, go full Chuck Norris, full Steven Seagal, take on 10 enemy dudes at once. Make a bunch of impossible kill shots. Not with Simo. His real story. Uh, actually, you probably have to tone it down in the movie version almost. Seems almost you know, not, not realistic. But I'm jumping ahead. I'm excited to get into his story. Almost there. Uh, Simo was a sniper. What's a sniper? Snipers are elite soldiers with specialized training, weaponry, and equipment. Unlike an assassin who will generally kill anyone for the right price, a sniper's targets are armed enemy soldiers. He serves as an integral part of a professional military organization. Militaries invest a great deal of time, money, and resources on training snipers, often operating isolated and alone, far from friendly units. Snipers have to be trained to cope successfully under extreme physical, mental, and environmental conditions. Because of the additional psychological and physical hardships a sniper will often have to endure, they're handpicked, put through a challenging and lengthy training regimen. In addition to being incredible shots, these motherfuckers have to have nerves of steel. The ability to sit under intense enemy fire, waiting for the right moment to take that perfect shot. It's like they got to be like an, an, an elite NFL quarterback, waiting to almost get sacked before launching that throw at just the right moment. Except they don't get sacked, you know, they can get shot. Within larger en en armies of the world's superpowers, snipers undergo separate, intense qualifying competitions and exams, where the final decisions regarding the individual's capability to carry out such an assignment are decided. Most candidates fail. 
Sniper's trained throughout the year, day and night, both alone and with his spotter. Spotter's his eyes and ears, helps him set up the perfect shots. Uh, the rationale being that he must learn how to react under all battlefield conditions, even when isolated, without logistical or intelligence support from friendly forces. Sniper's given special training in precision shooting and other applicable specialized training in subjects such as human physiology, survival, acting on the battlefield, estimating ranges, camouflage, advance and movement skills, basic requirements in setting up a firing position, moving to and from various firing positions, observing, field uh, zeroing a weapon, target selection, destroying various targets. Sniper also has, also has to be trained in reconnaissance, intelligence gathering. And of course, this is all general information. Each nation has their own, you know, puts their own twist on how to train a sniper. In the case of, you know, Simo Hawaha, he had to pass, of course, the Finnish sniper trials. A sniper in the Finnish defense forces around the time of Simo Hawaha uh, would have had to meet the following standard requirements. In addition to performing the standard duties of an infantryman, a sniper must be able to, one, estimate distances. Two, recognize various sounds and their general direction. I guess that's like, you know, you got to know the difference between like a, like a fucking owl and an enemy soldier, you know, or like a, you got to recognize the difference between like a, like a nice Finnish lady and like an angry Russian dude. Uh, number three, utilize the terrain for cover against enemy fire and observation. Number four, camouflage himself, his equipment, firing position, gear and accessories. Five, read a map, navigate in the woods at all times, the day and night, uh, time, you know, in the year. Uh, number six, recognize, define, and pinpoint enemy personnel and equipment. Number seven, utilize the terrain to support one's own mission. Number eight, have excellent physical strength. Nine, be able to endure pressure and remain still in a certain position for lengthy periods of time. Ten, have tremendous initiative and the independence to carry out complex missions without further instructions or supervision. Eleven, understand the basics of intelligence gathering. Twelve, know how to quickly set up and tear down a small sauna big enough for at least two people, but not big enough to accommodate more than four people. Thirteen, be able to clean a rifle both inside and out of a sauna. 14. Be able to hit a target 300 yards away in one shot from a sauna. 15. Be prepared to detonate special explosive devices inside of saunas to keep Russian commies from enjoying the fucking pleasures of a finished sauna. And of course, I made up 12 to 15. Uh, and of course, Simo aced all of the real qualifications. More than exactly how well he aced those in today's times of timeline. Simo would use the sniper skills with devastating effects in the face of superior Russian firepower. They had a lot more men, a lot more equipment. The Russians used anti-tank guns, armor-piercing and exploding bullets to try and kill Simo, but they couldn't. Ah, not when you're fighting a fucking Finnish ninja. Simo would fight for his country in the uh, Kola Front, a southeastern part of Finland that bordered the Soviet lands, located in, you know, Karelia. The Russian 8th Army was placed in the area north of Lake Latika near the Finnish border. The Russian army in total would send anywhere from 425,000 to a million soldiers to invade Finland. Estimates vary wildly. Used, uh, they used anywhere from 2,514 to 6,541 tanks, almost 4,000 aircraft. Finns had anywhere from 300,000 to 340,000 soldiers, only 32 tanks, only 114 aircraft. Uh, they were severely outnumbered, where SEMA would fight even more so. At one point on the Kula uh, front battlefield, where SEMA would first fight, there were 4,000 Soviets <laughs> in this one little skirmish uh, I had several sources say this. 4,000 Soviets fighting against Simo and 31 other snipers. 32 versus 4,000. And, and they somehow, and they held the front. It, it, it didn't break. It's fucking crazy. 
How were they able to fight off so many Russians? Well, partly because the Finns had home field advantage. You know, they understood the snow-covered, pine-tree-covered, very thick, forested, hilly, rugged landscape of the area. Also partly because the Finns fought with a lot more conviction and passion than the Russians. Morale way higher. By 1938, the year before the Winter War began, 36% of the Communist Party's membership had been purged by Stalin's paranoia. Three out of five marshals, 14 out of 16 army commanders charged with being agents of foreign powers, secretly tried and executed. Stalin murdered almost half of his own officer corps before the war begun because he was fucking insane. One of the biggest monsters in the history of the world. Subsequently, incompetent officers received accelerated promotions, so they didn't have the best leadership. Uh, Stalin realized this mistake once the war with Finland, you know, was underway. So he was thinking stuff like, maybe not a great idea to kill best officer right before war. I'm not too, I'm not, you know, too big man to say sorry. I make a mistake. Just do not bring up a mistake or I have you killed on spot. During just three months of fighting, their forces suffered over 300,000 casualties compared to around 65,000 for the Finns. Uh, the Winter War, Simo Fadden may have saved countless Allied lives, also may have led to an Allied victory that may not have happened without this war. This little, this little war within a war, very important to the overall, you know, World War II efforts of the Allies. The Red Army's struggles against this, you know, outmanned and outgunned Finns said to have led to Adolf Hitler's mistaken belief that he could, you know, take on Russia with his June 1941 invasion of the Soviet Union. He thought it would be, you know, easy based on how the Finns were, you know, keeping Russia from getting into Finland. Had Simo and the Finns not fought against the Russians so valiantly, Hitler may not have attacked Russia when he did and just continued to focus on the Western Front. Had he done that, who knows what the fuck would have happened? Nothing good. The U.S. might have had to drop uh, atomic bombs all over the place just to stop Hitler. Okay. Enough context. Now we know a little bit about Finland. Cool country worth fighting for. Lots of saunas. An agrarian country back in 1939, country that had just been given a taste of independence. We know that Russia had been making moves to take Karelia from Finland. They didn't like capitalists living close by. We know it's not easy to become a sniper. Only the best shots and the mentally toughest soldiers can qualify. Simo, as we'll find out, was the best of the best. We know he and you know, an outnumbered Finnish army gave the Russians one hell of a fight in the Winter War. Now let's dig into Simo's life and into a lot, you know, more war details in today's Time Suck timeline right after a word from today's first sponsor. Today's Time Suck is sponsored by Lisa. Lisa believes that a bed is more than just a place to sleep. It's a place for relaxation and rest. They believe that everybody has the right to rest. If Simo Hawaha would have had Lisa mattress, he probably would have won World War II single-handedly. Lisa makes two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases to give your body the deep rest it needs. They make the all-foam Lisa mattress, which is now new and improved, featuring cooling LSA 200 foam for enhanced pressure relief for side sleepers. They make their Sapira hybrid mattress as the perfect combination of foam and spring for pressure relief and edge-to-edge support. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody, and from day one, Lisa set out to create a company with heart. That's why they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell to organizations that work in causes like foster care prevention. To date, they've donated more than 32,000 mattresses to more than 1,000 nonprofits. They're awesome. I've had my Lisa all-foam mattress for well over a year now, and it's just as good as when I first got it. Same support, same sleep through the night comfort. Lisa mattresses are built to last. So get your Lisa sleep right, feel right. Get 15% off your entire order at lisa.com slash timesuck. Use the promo code timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck, promo code timesuck. Link in the episode description, Time Suck Timeline, right now. Strap on those boots, soldier. 
We're marching down a time-suck timeline. December 17, 1905, the future war hero, who be called White Death, born as Simo Hawaha in the hamlet of uh, Kiskinen in Raut Jorvi. Beautiful place. Watch a couple travel videos. Uh, rolling, rugged country covered by dense pine forests, big, jagged rock outcroppings, beautiful streams and lakes, so pristine. Looks like a Lord of the Rings type forest. Stuck makes me want to go to Finland so bad. And just random thing, <laughs> I just got to get out of my head. Uh, I was amazed how many like fin- Finland kind of travel videos, uh, A, that there are, and B, almost none of them have voiceover. Almost all of them have like weird techno, <laughs> like just fucking music in the background. It's just like nice, beautiful shots. So fucking people walking around in yoga pants and like a beautiful sunset. So apparently, if you, know, if you like the, the woods and saunas and you just love, you know, some fucking house music, you get your ass to Finland. Half of this area, uh, this uh, Karelia, will end up being lost to the Soviet Union by the end of the Winter War. Simo born seventh out of eight children in his family with four brothers, three sisters. Simo's father, uh, Juho uh, Hawaha, owner of the Matilla Farm, while his mother Katrina was a loving and hardworking farmer's wife. Uh, The Matilla Farm covered about 80 acres, part of which was forested. The rest consisted of farmland. In many respects, it was called a forest farm or what was called a forest farm, since it didn't have enough land suitable for actual farming to support like a large family through crops alone. Country was too rugged. Too many rocks. Too many pine trees. Too bad you can't, you know, just farm fucking pine cones. So they also had some domestic animals, such as horses, sheep, pig. Their farm was quite modern for its time. It fields equipped with subsurface drains, which allowed for the growing of sugar beets for animal food. Farm also had approximately 10 cows, which along with occasional timber harvest, got to do some, you know, got to do some logging. Gave the family enough income to make it through the long Finnish winters. Actually, the winters in this part of Finland, not as bad as I thought they would be. Temperature typically varies between 9 degrees, 71 degrees Fahrenheit year-round. Rarely drops below negative 14. Rarely gets above 81 degrees Fahrenheit. And I know if you're, if you're like living in Florida, you're like, oh, it's fucking terrible. No, it's, it's, like, it's like worse in some parts of upper Minnesota than that. Gets tons of snow between December and March. Averages over 20 days of snowfall a month. For those four months. That makes for a lot of fucking snow. Several feet of snow in the ground every winter. There, uh, the family farm comprised of a main house along with additional buildings and sheds for the animals, grain, food. Painted yellow. Cute. Main house originally contained four rooms with the fifth one added later when Simo's family grew larger. Juho Halaha would eventually transfer control of the farm to his son, Juhana, who together with Simo and an older brother, Mati, you know, they all took care of it. Life on the forest farm wasn't easy. Death visited the family often during Simo's teenage years. One of his brothers, uh, auntie, uh, died in the 1918 Finnish Civil War. And I might be fucking completely butchering these names again. There, there was no, you know, random old-timey Finnish name pronunciation guide I could find on the internet. You know, as I'm sure you're not surprised. Second brother, Juhana, was wounded in this war. Third brother, uh, Tuomos, died of a sunstroke while working in a road construction site uh, one summer. That surprised me. Sunstroke in Finland. Apparently, you can get hot enough for a sunstroke every once in a while. Uh, Johanna's wife, Hilda, her three daughters, Ani, Toini, Saini, Hindi, 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 helped contribute to the everyday affairs of the farm. Uh, during the winters, firewood cut according to needs. Simo's mother, Katrina, sewed most of the clothes worn by the men herself. It was a whole extended family affair. Very little house on the prairie. When they were old enough, Simo's three sisters, Mari, Katri, Hilja, uh, taught to sew men's mend men's clothes as their clothing had to endure wear and tear of heavy farm work. 
Simo's mother created a warm, caring atmosphere in the household. She was responsible for taking care of their spiritual upbringing as well. Singing psalms, living in a religious Lutheran atmosphere, a big part of Simo's childhood. And short life was good and simple. Family lived in a peaceful country life. As a child, Simo completed only four years of elementary school. And he was like, nah, fuck, I get it. I'm done. He received above average grades, but he just didn't care about it. He learned to read and write, basic arithmetic. And then he was like, ah, that's good for what I want to do. Loved farm work. Decided at an early age, he was going to carry on his father's profession. And that is what he would do. For Simo, higher education was for those more ego to, or more uh, eager, excuse me, to educate themselves. Simo was a practical man. He just, he was a simple guy. He loved nature, loved farming, loved to work with his hands, loved to work hard. That's what he's going to do. And then the military came calling. 1923, at the age of 17, Simo joined the Ratjarvi Civil Guard. Initially, he didn't really stand out much from his peers. If anything, maybe a little bit less was expected of him. He was a small man. Uh, he's, he's, he's a little, little bit bigger than, than, uh, than Reverend Dr. Joe. He's five foot three with a slim build. <laughs> he's inquisitive. I don't know why that's always funny to me. God damn it. <laughs> he was inquisitive. He was willing to learn. So were most of his countrymen. Uh, it's just not even that small. I just, I don't know why uh, it makes me uh, laugh to picture him just being a little teeny tiny guy. Civil Guard consisted of men who considered themselves patriots. His shooting skills and personal sacrifices ensured Finland would enjoy its new democratic style of government and independence. A Civil Guard shooting trainee had to pass several tests in marksmanship. This is where Simo began to stand out. A rookie would start as a C-class shooter until he passed the so-called C program. Five exercises, the last one of them shooting at a distance of 300 meters. Five shots from a prone position. Minimum requirement, 25 points. Once prompted to be a B-class shooter, the individual could attempt to pass the B program, consisting of six exercises. In this program, the last one is shooting at 150 meters. Six practice shots. I don't think I do well as this. Shooter begins at a starting position, standing with the rifle at ease, loaded with one cartridge and safety on. Five cartridges positioned in a cartridge clip in a closed pouch. The target is visible for 15 seconds and disappears for 10 seconds. Ugh. Sounds tricky. During the next stage, the target's visible for six seconds, disappears for nine seconds. It's trickier. During the last stage, visible for six seconds, disappears for 14 seconds. Too hard. Finally, the target is visible for 30 seconds. Three shots are fired, one per each turn of the target. The last three shots at the stationary target. I would miss every fucking shot. Uh, The requirement to pass to A-level was a minimum of three hits on the target. Only after completing this stage, a Civil Guard member can continue to participate additional training with individual combat shooting competitions. A-class. Also a qualification event for the Civil Guard Regional Combat Shooting Championships. SEMO, of course, went right fucking through. Smashed straight away to the A-class like, you know, no one had ever seen. Like it was nothing. This guy grew up hunting on the family farm. He loved to shoot. He was fast, really fast, incredibly steady. Amazing. He was like the fuck, he was the Michael Jordan of marksmanship. Simo's first practice rifle was the Mosin Nagant M1891, a Soviet five-shot bolt-action rifle developed from 1882 to 1891. Not exactly state-of-the-art in his time, but it was all he would need. He would, he would use a couple of the rifles, but this was his fave. Civil Guard distributed ammunition to its active members as well as it could, considering that there was a shortage of everything, including ammunition. Civil Guard also distributed gunpowder, primers, bullets, so active members could reload their own ammo. This meant that active members could train, practice, and hone their shooting skills more often as they had greater amounts of ammo for training use. Simo distinguished himself during the 1930s as the elite shooter of his platoon in various regional Civil Guard competitions, which he fucking dominated. In combat shooting practice, he, re- he represented the uh, Rajarvi Light Machine Gun Squad. He won numerous competitions, especially skilled with the brand new uh, Suomi submachine gun. 
He won uh, numerous regional championships with that weapon as well. He was a man born to shoot a gun. It's like it's just a part of his body. He was also awarded the Class Two Medal for skiing and physical condition. I love the skiing part. These dudes would literally ski around in the woods, you know, during during battles in the winter. You can find like old footage of this stuff. Skiing soldiers. I don't know why. It just it's kind of comical to me. You know, they're just out, they're out there. They're not like because the snow is so deep. Sometimes snowshoes, but a lot of times it's just like these dudes with fucking guns, just in a little single file line, just like skiing down a trail. And they just like, you know, sashay over to the side. And then, you know, like start firing. It's crazy to me. This, this is actually, these, these type of soldiers is where the Olympic sport, the biathlon, or uh, yeah, uh, bia- yeah bia- biath- biathlon, there we go, comes from. Cross-country skiing, target shooting combined. Nuts to me. Shooting off a fucking pair of skis. These guys, these guys were forest ninjas. They were winter forest ninjas. Seema was a right-handed shooter, always made it a point to shoot with his left eye closed. This enabled him to focus better with his right eye when looking at the rear tar- uh, sight. No doubt, Simo was a natural shooter. When, for example, he participated in his first competition in the 1930s without having practice, he shot a score of 93 out of 100 points from a distance of 300 meters. And didn't use a telescopic sight when he was doing these shots. He preferred iron sights. You know, I just like to see that little, little dot in the fucking sights there. Nothing, no scope. He's doing this shit with his naked eye. That's crazy. Like My dad's a really good shot. My dad loves hunting. He's a great shot. Oh, but ha- a scope, has to have a scope. If it's anything, you know, of any distance, like most people. Simo Hawa was fortunate to be educated in the art of shooting by older, more experienced members of the Civil Guard. Uh, many of this men, veterans of the 1918 Finnish Civil War, understood what was required of a soldier on the battlefield. These were veterans who didn't fuck around with, you know, useless academic training techniques. Instead, they concentrated on what limited resources and funds they had, you know, uh, to, to do the most essential aspects of war, such as marksmanship. Considering the limited amount of ammo available for shooting practice and zeroing weapons, every shot made by young trainees counted. They were expected to hit as close to the bullseye as possible. Simo didn't waste bullets. These men taught Simo uh, everything from the theory of shooting to standard triangle aiming practices, as well as the various subsets of shooting, such as how to execute a proper firing position, handling the rifle, aiming, breathing, squeezing the trigger properly, how to not, you know, be too hard but not too limp, you know, while you're firing your shot. You got to get the blood flow right. Well, they probably didn't do that, but maybe. By the time Simo would uh, enter the Winter War, years later, his skills as a marksman were well-established. Fortunately for Simo, while in the Civil Guard, he was able to keep up his uh, shooting practice while also still being a farmer, which he loved. The Civil Guard's activities were mainly restricted to the weekend. Kind of like kind of like the National Guard, you know, often here in America. Uh, during his service with the Guard, Simo learned the importance of fast reloading, blew the minds of other soldiers who saw how fast he could work a bolt-action rifle, there's a story from around this time about how Simo's friends once gave him a number of rifle cartridges, told him to shoot as many times as possible. In one minute, he had one minute at a target located 150 meters away, over a football field and a half away. That works out to about 165 yards. <laughs> no scope. As the timer started, Simo began shooting. One minute later, he had fired a total of 16 shots and he put 16 holes in the target. It's fucking, he was like a fucking superhero with his bolt action rifle considering that each cartridge had to be manually fed with a fixed magazine, you know, held only five cartridges. It's, uh, it's mind boggling. And, 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 I, and it, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners. I know a lot of you guys know a lot more about guns than I do. And I would imagine that your minds are even more blown than mine because you, you understand it on a level. I probably don't. Uh, Simo did his conscription service, 1925 to 1927, served a total of 15 months, did his duty. He was promoted to corporal. And after the mandatory conscription service, you know, ended, he returned back to his home on the family farm. And he found some squirrels and he stayed sharp by lighting those motherfuckers up. He could shoot 10 to 15 squirrels a minute at 100 meters out. He could do that for five minutes straight. 
No, he didn't do that. I don't think. Maybe he did. On October 21st, 1926, Finland and the Soviet Union started unsuccessful negotiations for a non-aggression pact. The Winter War was on its way because the Soviet Union was a bunch of assholes. But he knew that already. While he didn't kill all the squirrels in the area, Simo did enjoy hunting in uh, Ratajarvi throughout the 1930s. According to him, his closest and most trusted friend was his hunting dog, Kille. Kille was a rare hunting breed known as a Finnish Spitz. And, uh, and Simo would go on to, uh, to breed hunting dogs after the war. And I love that he had a dog named Kille. Kille was a fearless, reliable dog, you know, uh, great at spotting moose, another big game. And Kille accompanied Simo often. And I'm going to pretend that Kille in English translates to Bojangles. Maybe they're the same dog. When he wasn't farming, Simo was hunting or trapping. He learned from area elders how to hunt moose, beaver, birds, other small predators. Simo's specialty was foxes, which I guess were somewhat difficult to catch even for a skilled hunter. And during his life, Simo would shoot quite a number of foxes and he would trap many others. He loved to kill woodland creatures. No wonder he was such a good sniper. Dude was a natural born killer, natural hunter. Hopefully I can channel a bit of Simo this week and kill a deer. God, I want to fucking get one. Trying to get a whitetail a few miles from my house this week. Hopefully Lindsay will be complaining about the freezer being filled up with venison that she claims she will not eat, uh, you know, uh, when, when she, whenever, whenever I bring it up. Hopefully, hope that's going to happen. Don't bother sending any emails about, you know, wanting me to not hunt if you think it's sad. Even if you're vegan, I don't care. I've thought about it a lot and there's nothing unethical about hunting. Animals die. They're going to die whether or not I shoot one. If I was an animal, you know, I had the choice between a one-shot kill from a hunter I never even saw or be taken down by disease, famine, natural forest predators. I'm picking bullet. Quickest, most painless, most humane death. You ever seen a fucking wolf kill something? Blah! Not good. <laughs> Way messier. You ever seen a mountain lion get a hold of something? Way messier. Or dying of disease, you know, out there. Sorry, that's sad. Also, I don't know if you uh, know this, but naturalists have been able to do brain studies on deer for the last few years with some new technology and get a basic feel for what they think. And it turns out they mostly think about wanting to kill humans, specifically kids. Mm-hmm. That whitetail, you know, you think is so cute, would, would hoof slap your third grader to fucking death if given half a chance. Of course, that's nonsense, but I want you to pretend it's true if you ever get sad about hunting. And I kind of want to hunt. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting distracted, but I was, I'm just so sick of the deer in my yard this year. I'm so sick of them. I hate them so much. I, I wish I could just keep them out. I try. I throw rocks at them. I slingshot them. They don't care. And uh, I chase them. They don't care. Uh, if, I can, if I get close enough, I sometimes I chase them with a stick, not even joking, just run down the street like a, like a, like a lunatic. I'm going to fucking beat them if I get close enough because my dog, Gigi, is an idiot who just is obsessed with deer and just whines and barks at any hour of the day if the deer are anywhere nearby. Anyway, yeah, kill deer. Uh, meanwhile, war is brewed in 1939. Simo is 33 years old. April 2nd, 1939, the Finnish government decides to start building fortifications along the Karelian Isthmus, the area located south of Lake Ladoga. Six months later, on October 5th, the Soviet Union states it would like to initialize talks on what it describes as current issues between the Soviet Union and Finland. And the basic issue is like, they won't just give us stuff when we ask for it. They won't just give us our land. They're being weird. You know, the current issue is that Finland wants to, you know, uh, let the Russian army, uh, doesn't want to let the Russian army inside its border to do whatever it wants. And Finnish leaders, you know, they, they, uh, they don't want to do that because they think that that sounds exactly how to stop becoming or stop being a capitalist democracy and end up becoming a satellite communist state that Stalin will purge of its leadership. Since a mutual agreement between the two countries can be met, you know, met, can be found. The Soviet Union tries to provoke Finland into war on November 26, 1939 by launching artillery shells at itself near the Russian village of Manila, an incident known in history as the shelling of Manila. 
Classic false flag operation. The Russian, you know, uh, trying to make it look like the Finns act first so they'll have a cleaner excuse to attack that'll draw less international backlash, less chances of Finland being able to pull allies into a war with Russia. Manila is located on the Karelian Isthmus, a few hundred kilometers south of uh, Kola. Seven shots fired. Their, their fall is detected by three Finnish observation posts. Witnesses estimate that the shells detonated approximately 800 meters inside Soviet territory. They hit nothing. Finland proposes a neutral investigation of the incident, but the Soviets are like, no, no, we don't even want it. Nope, uh-uh. They refuse. They break diplomatic relations with Finland on November 29th. The Russians try to blame this incident on Finnish aggression. They demand an apology, and the Finnish are like, hey, guys, you've, you've, no, you bombed yourself. I mean, if we would have done it, we would have actually hit you because we're a lot more accurate than you guys are. Russia began moving a number of divisions close to the Russian-Finnish border now after this incident. And then when Finland refuses to acquiesce to Russia, Denies responsibility for what had taken place at Manila. The Soviet Union attacks on November 30th, 1939 with 23 divisions, totaling approximately 450,000 troops. They're not fucking around. And they kick off the Winter War. And before we get into that war, quick word from a sponsor. Time Suck brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Seems like there's an infinite amount of information uploaded to the internet every day. It's hard to know what's accurate. But stuff about reptilians, not accurate. I'm going to say that. That's why I love having the Great Courses Plus. There is valuable in-depth content I can trust. It's not, uh, you know, pro-flat-earth stuff. The streaming service offers thousands of objective, unbiased lectures from respected professors who really know their stuff. Topics range from mythologies of the world to ancient Mesopotamia. From surviving in the wild, Simo would like that one. Simo would ace that one. He would know it all uh, already. Life lessons from the great books and much more. The best part about Great Courses Plus, you can watch, listen, anytime, anywhere. I recommend checking out the course, Understanding the Dark Side of Human Nature. This course explores evil, immortality, sin, the unpleasant facts of the human condition through stories and philosophy that crosses cultures. Watch Lecture 10, The Fear of Death. We're all going to die. How do we respond to that knowledge? Learn why the Roman philosopher Lucretius believed that our fear of death drives us to act against our best interests. And why the Taoist philosopher uh, Zhuangzi Wondered if our negative view of death even makes sense. I wonder if Simo made his peace with death before going to war, considering how dangerous his duties would be. I bet. I bet so. Stop second guess and sign up for the Great Courses Plus today. I have arranged for time suckers to get a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. When you sign up today using the special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description. Uh, big, big fan of the Great Courses Plus. They're a great friend of the show. Now let's get to the Winter War. David versus Goliath. Finland has a population of less than 4 million in 1939. The Soviet Union, over 168 million. By the end of the war, the Soviet Union would mobilize over 30 million soldiers, over eight times the amount of people in the entire nation of Finland. And they didn't mobilize all of those against Finland, but just in the war in general. Just, just trying to establish, you know, underdog would be an understatement comparing Finland and, and Russia. Soon after the Russians attack, the Soviet Union creates a puppet regime government on December 2nd, 1939 at Terjoki, a town on the Finnish side of the Russian-Finnish border in Karelia, designed to create an impression of political and diplomatic legitimacy to the outside world. It fooled no one. Known as the Finnish Democratic Republic, it was little more than a, than a puppet government founded, you know, uh, by the, or led by the founder of the Finnish Communist Party, Otto Ville uh, Kusinin. What was Simo up to this time? Luckily, dude kept a diary. He made those four years of grade school count. And on days he didn't write in his diary, he wrote down what happened later. He was also interviewed as a national hero numerous times shortly after the war. So we get to know what he was thinking about, you know, what he was doing throughout all of this. He wrote, on the last day of November, 
I was in Suvlate, where I had been sent the previous day with some others to participate in an anti-tank course. That night, we slept well. Only in the morning were we told that the Soviets had started a heavy artillery bombardment against villages in Hersela uh, Riverbend, followed by a simultaneous infantry attack across the border. We took our time to have a good breakfast, followed by orders to each one of us to return to our own respective units. Well, this is it, we thought. The war had begun. Now I would be able to really apply f- uh, for real all the skills I had honed when practicing for the annual Vipuri Civil Guard Autumn Shooting Championships. I knew I was in excellent shape as I was extremely satisfied with my results during the last combat and range shooting exercises. I love this guy. So calm and stoic about all this. So brave. You know, this is just writing about, you know, all this. You find out that Russia is attacking. He's, he's calmly thinking about stuff like, yeah, I had a good breakfast. I, I was excited to put my skills to the test. I did well in the autumn championships. You know, I'll probably do well with the Russians. I would not be as calm. Like if you could see like a diary entry for me, you know, right, right in this moment in time, oh, it wouldn't be good. November 30th, 1939. Fuck. Not a good day. Just found out we're fighting Russia. So probably going to die. God damn it. I mean, there's no way this is going to work out. What's our president thinking? Just lay down, dude. Has he ever looked at a map? We're not fighting Estonia or Latvia. We're fighting a real country. A big one. Stalin is going to fuck. He's going to bend me over and fuck me with his savage commie dick. Oh, I didn't tell mom to watch Kile. There's no way I'm going to come back home. No, no, no doom and gloom for Simo. Simo continues with, once we reached uh, Piajoki, we assembled our barbed wire, fortified our trenches, and finished digging our foxholes. The first Soviet attack against us came during the darkness. After a few days of heavy fighting, we were given orders to withdraw all the way to Sov- uh, Suvalati. Then we participated in a minor battle to hold off the Russians once again. One incident I will never forget. I was given a mission to destroy the telephone line. I did that and cut the wires, taking my time, although the Russians were shooting at me with a machine gun from a position about 200 meters away. I just couldn't think yet that I would be in any real danger, as our losses in Piajoki had been very low, despite the heavy fighting and bombardment. This guy. Uh, the Russians were shooting at me with machine guns from, you know, I don't know, like 200 yards away, but, you know, I took my time. Full steel. Full steel balls in this guy. And did he just throw some shade at Russian marksmanship abilities? I think he did. You know, I think that was a little bit of like, nah, I wasn't worried. I mean, it's not, it's not like they were, you know, good soldiers. It was fucking Russians. I didn't think they were actually going to hit me. I mean, sure, they're 200 yards away and there's a whole bunch of them. They're, you know, throwing artillery shells my way, but come on. <laughs> fucking Russians. I could have, you know, I could have just laid down taking a nap there. What are they going to do? Simo uh, participated in the first battles of the war in Surjarve. Uh, the Finnish troops, the Finnish troops withdrew to Suvate from where they disengaged to the Kola River, some 300 kilometers away where the Russian attack was brought to a halt. The battle here was intense, bloody. Many men from Rajarvi, guys Simo grew up with, fell during the first days of fighting. A specialist for difficult missions in the early days of the war, Simo's company commander, Lieutenant uh, Jul, oh, Jutelainen, was impressed by Simo's marksmanship uh, abilities immediately. After just a few days of fighting, you know, he made him a sniper, gave him his own missions. And Simo would quickly save his lieutenant's ass. One of Simo's most famous combat engagements in the war came after an enemy sniper killed three of his platoon leaders. This uh, lieutenant summoned Simo, ordered him to try to knock that man out, and Simo replied, I'll do my best. Simo then selected a suitable firing position as daylight was slowly coming to an end. After several hours of waiting, Simo noticed a little flicker on the horizon, the last rays of sunlight, reflecting directly off the Russian sniper's scope. And, and, and after spotting this flicker on the horizon, and again, he has no scope himself, Part of the reason he had no scope is he didn't want, you know, snipers to see the flicker on his scope. Simo keeps his, his Hawkeye on this dude 
And soon the Russian, you know, stands up rather carelessly, probably just thinking that with dusk approaching, with no shots having been fired in the last few hours, he can't see any fins. You know, his day's work's done. He's going to pack up his shit and go home. While he's standing there for a moment, Simo carefully aims his M1891 at the Russian sniper a few hundred yards away, looks through his iron sights, squeezes the trigger, hits the dude one shot in the cheek, killing him instantly. Without a scope! After the shot and a few others like it, Simo's promoted from corporal to second lieutenant. It's the fastest jump in rank in Finland's brief military history. Uh, Simo also spoke of another incident when the, this lieutenant unsuccessfully tried to kill an enemy sniper with a scoped rifle. Shortly thereafter, Simo was ordered to kill him and related the following. It happened once that my CO, Lieutenant uh, Jutalainen, the horror of Morocco, that was this guy's nickname, that's a badass nickname, as he was known from his previous service in the Foreign Legion, tried to kill an enemy sniper with a scoped rifle. The Russian had taken up position about 400 meters from us. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Over four football fields away, like closest to five. Constantly shooting towards our lines. After a while, the lieutenant sent for me and showed me approximately where he thought the enemy sniper's position to be. One of our second lieutenants was with us, acting as a spotter, when our duel begun. At first, I did not see a trace of him, just a small rock where he was supposed to be. After careful investigation, we spotted him behind a little hump of snow near the rock. I took a careful aim, and the very first shot hit the intended target. Did one shot, Johnny. Ah, Simo's legend continues to grow. He just showed up a dude with the badass nickname of the Horror of Morocco. That's how you get a badass nickname of your own. He's going to get that nickname in just a bit. Uh, Simo's reputation as a marksman reaches the Russian front lines just days into the war. Snipers are held high in high regard in Russia. And this dude was embarrassing them. He was killing their snipers, their, their top snipers, freaking them out. It was like they were fighting some type of five foot three Finnish Batman, just zipping around on cross country fucking skis, popping out from behind rocks and trees, blowing the fucking head off of anyone who just, you know, took a second to peek out from behind some shrubs. One time in the early days of the war after Simo once again finished off an enemy sniper with a single shot, the Russians tried to kill him by shooting indirect fire. Just a mortar bombardment. Just send all your mortars in that direction. We got to get rid of this guy. Just, you know, throw him at the general vicinity of his firing position. Miraculously, Simo, not wounded, and not, of course, killed. His legend grows. On another occasion, an artillery shell uh, landed near his firing position and blew off basically his coat. It just it just tore apart the back of his coat. And he just took off the rest of it and just kept shooting. He's he got only a minor scratch because he's fucking Superman. No big whoops. You know, no reason to stop shooting. Just blew up, just blew my coat off. The Russians put a lot of effort into killing him, including using heavy artillery. One of Simo's stories recounts these efforts. He says, there was this forward observer and his crew nearby. And once I knocked out their sniper, they sent a, that was just casual. Once I knocked out their sniper, this, once I just killed this other highly trained guy, they sent a swarm of shells in my direction from a rapid firing cannon shooting direct fire. About 50 shells landed around my foxhole, but in vain. Many of them threw clouds of sand into my face, but nothing worse than that. Lieutenant uh, Julitainen, that horror of Morocco guy, sent a man to tell me to get out of there. They'll kill you there, he said. Well, getting out of the foxhole was not really on my mind. So intense was the enemy fire. <laughs> yeah, this guy just doesn't even, just so, like, so chill, so chill about all this. No anxiety, no fear. Soon the Russians were feeling like they were trying to kill a ghost and the nickname White Death started getting tossed around. Simo became the Finns' go-to guy for the highest level combat situations, most important missions. At times, he was even personally summoned by car or horse-drawn sleigh to other sectors of his battalion to undertake specific tasks that other snipers could not complete. Once they told me from the HQ to go to the 5th Company section to destroy the forward observer site, where an artillery spotting periscope was sighted, he said. There was another forward observer who was preparing fire for effect. I got 
uh, I only got two or three shots at the forward observer's periscope before the Russians started to shoot at us with heavy artillery fire. Shrapnel, tree branches, and ash are flying all over the place. Miraculously, we survived. However, it resulted in our aborting the mission, and the spotting periscope was not destroyed that time. What? Simo? Are you not a superhero? Why would you leave this target unsniped? I didn't. He goes back. Simo never left his mission until it was accomplished, and the story continues. Later that day, I returned to the scene, this time from a different angle. This time, I got my shots out as the artillery fire was hitting further away and the periscope was destroyed. But, of course, it was. Then he continues, Russian artillery fire intensified all the time, and now it was targeted against the accommodation bunkers of the 5th Company. There was a direct hit on one of the bunkers, but the men inside survived, with minor scratches from flying pieces of logs. We estimated that although I had destroyed the forward observer and the 7th man team around it, what? He fucking kills these guys. It, there would be a replacement. And so it happened. Well, we repeated our performance and the new spotting scope was destroyed as well. Although this one was a monoscope instead of the stereoscope that we had destroyed the day before. White death. Striking again. Yeah, go ahead. Send thousands of rounds of artillery shells. And the Russians did send thousands of shells a day in these battles. Oh, white death. You just, you know, hide behind some logs, some rocks, you know, whatever. Pop up and, you know, shoot, what, you know, whatever scopes you try and set up for other snipers just with his, with his iron sights. Just, just whatever. Probably just having like sandwich sandwiches and stuff, you know, just drinking some juice or whatever behind a log, just all casual. Taking a nap maybe here and there. Serving as a sniper wasn't Simo's only duty. He also participated in a number of well-executed Finnish counterattacks, which were typical on the Kula front, made necessary by Russian penetrations. Simo uh, uh, said on December 4th, 1939, we disengaged from the battle because of the pressure of the enemy force, withdrew to Kula, started fortifying our trenches, preparing firing positions. We expected to be able to get some rest as we were quite exhausted for several days of heavy fighting. Our lull did not last long before the fighting started again. As far as I was concerned, it continued in the same region until the early days of March. By mid-December, the Russians had resumed their usual attacks, and after a while, we started counterattacks on our behalf. The Russians were taken by surprise as they sat around our four large campfires, and we crawled very close— Oh, they sat around four—not our. They sat around four large campfires. We crawled, we crawled very close before opening fire. The resulting battle scattered the Russians in complete disarray. We captured plenty of booty from this trip. Among the items we captured were machine guns, submachine guns, and four anti-tank guns. Fucking Wolverines! They're not just sniping. They're raiding the Russians. Guerrilla warfare, surprise attacks. These guys are badass. More brave attacks by Finnish soldiers follow, often culminating in the seizure of considerable quantities of Russian weapons, other prized items that the Finns lacked. Right? Remember, they don't have much in the terms of supplies. Simo and his comrades had all the odds stacked against them. But in the early days of war, they were winning. They were actually defending their homeland against the much larger Russian army, much better supplied. Throughout the Winter War, there was a constant shortage of combat material for Finnish troops. One major reason being that only a short time before the war began, Finland's prime minister repeatedly voted against funding for the military. Yeek! Ah, dumb. When the war, especially with all the things building around there. Anyways, when the war broke out, many soldiers were given only a military hat and a rifle. That's it. That's all the government can afford to give them. These dudes were wearing civilian clothes, wearing whatever coats and boots they had in the closet at home. Wearing, you know, these during one of the worst winters in recent memory. The temperature would drop during this brief war that lasted just over 100 days to negative 45 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 43 degrees Celsius. These guys were a mess, but they were defending their homes. They were fighting the tyranny of Stalin. They knew what true defeat would mean. Stalin's gulags, a nightmare system of government coming to Finland. Now time for another cool Simo story. He wrote this regarding the thoroughness of his preparations. Of course, I had to participate in many other attacks and recon patrols with my men. But one was like another, so it is pointless to comment on them all. 
Precision shooting, either alone or with a comrade, was also the everyday duty, and we got some remarkable results. We observed the enemy activity during the day, tried to figure out when we would find the most target-rich environment. When darkness came, I prepared myself a good firing position. I even packed the snow on the ground in a manner that it would not give me away by dusting from the muzzle blast. From a position like that, it was easy to shoot, and I was happy with the results. Dude! His attention to detail is amazing. I'm guessing that attention is what led to him becoming such a good shot in the first place. It's so inspiring. Like, what if we all put that level of planning and attention to details, that much work, you know, towards our careers and families, just lives in general? Are you doing whatever the equivalent to packing down the snow so that dust from a muzzle blast doesn't give away your firing position? Are you doing the equivalent in your life? More SEMO uh, Russian kills coming up. Uh, but first, one last sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you again by Bell Gunnis's Norwegian Massage Parlor. This week in honor of Veterans Day, veterans get 50% off a sexy, sensual massage given to you by a burly, powerful Norwegian woman. And if you're Finnish and five foot three inches tall or less, you get an additional 50% off. That's right, 100% off for tiny Finnish veterans. But Bell still wants you to bring $10,000 in cash and not tell anyone you're coming. Just so she knows, you know, you're capable of buying more massages in the future or something like that. It's nothing to do with insurance fraud. So head on down to Bell Gunnis Norwegian Massage Parlor. Let Bell put her murderous upper body strength to use rubbing your body down while soothing away your troubles with her sultry, relaxing Norwegian accent. Oof da, oof da, hangy bangy, pushing under needing, rubbing under tugging, putting the thingy dingy in the holesy wolsey, squeezing the tiny finish man's muscles, squishing on his Arctic pale hiney, rubbing on his tiny Nordic meat icicle. Oof da, oof da, hangy bangy. And of course, that's not a sponsor. Just something I love to do. I did a little long there. I feel like I was going to pass that. I started to get a little bit uh, lightheaded. It's hard to breathe when you're hoingy boingy in it. We have one more real sponsor. Uh, excited today. Uh, excited to say, excuse me, this manly episode of Time Suck is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped is number one in men's below the belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. I just got the perfect package 3.0 for Manscaped. And holy shit, my balls have never felt, looked, or smelled better. Not kidding. Not that I was doing sniff tests on my balls before because I'm not nearly that flexible. But I never sprayed them down with ball toner before. Now I have. The Perfect Package 3.0 comes with an awesome pair of boxers, comes with a lawnmower, 3.0 electric ball trimmer. At my hotel in Columbus, Ohio, the other week, I mowed the hell out of my balls. I really did. And my wife, Lindsay, loves it. Cleaned up the whole area. Got it all showcase ready. Dick, balls, taint, bottom of the treasure trail. If our Puritan culture didn't make nudity so taboo, I'd post a pic of my sweet, sweet, handsome balls on Instagram. Showing off my fresh haircut. This, uh, this kit comes with anti-chafing boxers, anti-chafing ball deodorant, ball toner, more. It looks awesome. Quality stuff. Seriously, anyone looking to get their man a really cool, fun gift, get this. It's funny because it's basically a, a, a ball spa kit, but the quality is no joke. You know, it, it, it can seem like a, a joke gift. No, it's no joke. I seriously feel more confident. I feel better with my showcase-worthy balls. Best trimmer I've ever used down there. Tis the season to manscape. So get yourself, your dad, your brother, your friend's best gift of all, the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0. Uh, Time Suckers get 20% off and free shipping with the code TIMESUCK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off, free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code TIMESUCK, link in the episode description. Joe Paisley, have you tried out your kit yet? I have. It's so good. Oh, I can't even. 
I can't even. Why Why? Why was I letting my balls be chafed before? I, I didn't realize how sad I've been for 33 years. Right. Now I'm happy. Now you got some happy. And the newspaper thing is sweet, too. Oh, yeah. To, to cover it. Comes to, clean up the newspaper hair. newspaper thing. Mm-hmm. Ha- happy balls, happy guy. Now back to a time and place where no one's balls were happy. No one's balls were even remotely clean or well-groomed. I can't imagine what balls smelled like uh, on the Russian-Finnish border at the end of 1939. Rough. I'm going to guess real rough. December 21st, 1939, just a few weeks into the war, Simo shot what would prove to be his highest daily uh, tally of kills on record, as far as confirmed, 25 confirmed kills in one day. Prior to this, his record was 23 confirmed Russians killed in one day. By the time he achieved this amazing body count, Simo had already been credited with having killed more than 100 Russians. And again, just a few weeks into the war. He's just picking them off like it's a video game. Incredibly, over a three-day period in December, he amassed a total of 51 confirmed kills. This might be a good time to point out that most historians seem to think this is his confirmed kills were roughly just a third of his total kills. You know, because, you know, the confirmed ones had to be recorded, you know, in this very specific way with a spotter, other soldiers. Actual number, probably much higher. He might have killed 50 or even 75 enemy soldiers in one day. You know, one at a time, no scope, bolt action rifle. Is Simo finished for Rambo? December 29th, Christmas, 1939, the fighting continues. Simo recalled that the Russians did not give us peace even during Christmas. But God was close to us. We sang psalms, had a Christmas tree, received many gifts from home. Man, the poor Russians. They probably didn't want to fight on Christmas. A lot of them probably didn't want to fight at all. They just knew they'd get shot if they didn't. Uh, Simo continued his methodical preparations over the holidays. At night, he'd visit his favorite firing positions, making whatever preparations and minor improvements he felt might increase his advantage. By the end of the year, when Simo approached 200 confirmed kills, he started to receive awards other than just praise and admiration from his commanding officers. An unnamed individual from his hometown region contributed several fine pocket watches that were given out to only the most distinguished combatants. And of course, Simo receives one. Sometime later, he also receives a wrapped gift from his commanding officer at the Kula front. Inside is a nice pair of warm gloves. Most likely knitted by the general's wife herself, Simo loved these gloves more than the rest of the winter. Simo is quickly becoming a national hero, and I love that he was excited to get a pair of knitted gloves for constantly, courageously risking his life. My kids... Don't do anything heroic. And if I gave them a pair of knitted gloves for anything, they'd be so pissed. They'd think I was joking. Do you ever think about how spoiled most of us are now compared to how people were uh, less than 100 years ago? I get a new iPhone now. and I'm like, "Eh, whatever. I'll be impressed by like some new feature for like a minute. And I'm just like, ah, change the keyboard layout. And I'll just be be instantly furious over nothing. Fuck, stupid phone. God damn, why can't they leave it alone? Where's the emojis? I'll be like genuinely mad. This dude is killing people. A lot of people for his country. Risking his life, sleeping out in below zero temperatures. Happy to get a pair of knitted gloves. Maybe we should be inspired by that as well, right? Appreciate what we have. And I, and I doubt he was mad at all. Yeah, he was happy. He wasn't like, stupid gloves don't even fit right. Don't even like this color. In December, the advance of Soviet troops comes to a standstill as a result of numerous Finnish defensive victories. David beating Goliath. The Kulaf front would go down to the Finnish history of the Winter War as having never been broken. 1,500 Finns would be killed or wounded fighting at the Kulaf front compared to 8,000 Russians. Uh, the Finnish forest warriors, as they'd be called, who fought on the Kulaf front attained a legendary rep- reputation among the Finnish, amongst the Finnish people. They would speak during and after the war about this region with reverence, as one would of an individual hero and with good reason. The Russians concentrated the majority of their manpower, material, and firepower resources on the Karelian Isthmus and were opposed by two-thirds of the Finnish army. In such a confined region, not much room for tactical maneuvering. But the situation was different in the deep forests of the Kula Front, where there was ample space for movement. In this area, Finland's skillful mobile ski troops operated with virtual impunity, 
They inflicted considerable damage on the Russians over and over again. The rural Finns used their inherent knowledge of the terrain to beat the Russians time and time again. Finland's sparse road network severely limited Russian options for troop advancement. They couldn't utilize their huge army. You know, it wasn't easy to mobilize uh, all these troops and, and artillery and tanks because uh, the roads were too tiny to move them to the forest. It was very, again, Red Dawn-esque, very Wolverines. The Finns repeatedly conducted surprise attacks against the unsuspecting Russian troops. By the end of 1940, or I'm sorry, by the end of January 1940, however, the Russians were able to send another division to Kula, able to start hitting the Finns a little harder. The Finns had more reinforcements arriving as well, but not as many. Finland just couldn't compete with Russia when it came to reinforcements. They could just always just keep sending more and more dudes. Soon the Russians had four divisions in this theater, which gave them the opportunity to begin widening and steamrolling local roads, widening their front, being able to move equipment a little more easily. The Russians were able to really escalate their aggressiveness. All of this, as all of this fighting goes on, Simo continues to accumulate more and more kills. After the war, he'd still win more awards for all of this. Some of them would even be better than a pair of knit gloves. For his accomplishments on the battlefield, he was awarded a custom-built precision rifle made by prominent Finnish rifle manufacturer Sako. The rifle was contributed by a Swedish businessman and a great friend of Finland. The rifle was intended to be awarded to the most distinguished shooter of the Corps, so of course it was given to Simo. Citation that would accompany this award for the rifle read, This honorary rifle from Sweden is thus granted to NCO Simo Hawaha in recognition of his great accomplishments as a shooter and combatant. His deeds... 219 enemies shot with the rifle, the same number with the submachine gun. <laughs> that is crazy. Uh, uh, <laughs> shows what a determined Finnish man who fears nothing can do, has sharp eyes and whose hands do not shake. This honorary rifle should be passed from father to son as a reminder for the yet unborn generations of the great deeds done by Simo Hauaha in the great war where the men of Finland bravely and with success fought for the freedom of their country, the future of their people, and for the greater ideals of mankind. That's a legend. I hope it was all said and done. Simo would read that from time to time, you know, just feel proud about what he did for his country. Simo often did his sniper's work alone, though he did have a spotter, you know, sometimes. He, he, he usually worked with the same soldier for his spotter. For many dec- uh, decades, Simo the loner never disclosed the identity of this chosen spotter. He wanted to protect his soldiers, you know, this guy's privacy. And then eventually, many years later in 2001, at the War Veterans Institute, he said his battle buddy was Corporal Malmi. There's no real records of Malmi or further information on him, but Simo mentioned working with Corporal Malmi, uh, you know, several weeks. Here's one story Simo told about his uh, cooperation with Corporal Malmi. He said in early February 1940, Cor- Corporal Malmi and I spotted a new area of enemy accommodation bunkers. The two of us set out to an observation post to learn what was going on there. We moved silently through the forest, got within 150 meters of the enemy bunkers, which were located between the front lines. We spent the whole day in our position and killed 19 Russians. They never learned where we were, dared not to send a patrol out under those circumstances. Damn, two dudes hanging out in the woods inside 150 meters from a Russian bunker, just chilling, just thinking, nah, they're not going to send a patrol over here. Risk getting clipped by white death? (laughs) Get out of here. You know, I just picture those guys munching on sandwiches, you know, maybe spotting a, a Russian peeking out somewhere. And then, you know, Simo just calmly sets a sandwich down, make sure he doesn't set it in some dirt, you know, he just fucking pops the Russian one shot, waits a couple seconds, see if anyone else is moving, and then just, you know, calmly just, you know, goes back to eating a sandwich. Full steel, full steel balls. Despite the heavy losses it had suffered during the war, the Finnish Infantry Regiment 34 was given orders on March 6th to counterattack and halt the Red Army's 128th Division, which was attempting to penetrate the Kula defenses. The Finnish artillery had literally literally zero shells left at this point. 
It's leaving their infantry to stop the Russian advance without indirect fire support. The Russians were not going to be easily stopped. They started rushing into the enemy, getting mowed down, con- you know, continuing to rush. More guys would just pop up, you know, no matter how, they, how many they'd shoot, just more guys behind them. After the war in an interview, Simo wondered why the Russians kept on charging into direct, heavy Finnish fire. Why did they keep trying to break through Finnish lines when most of them were quickly being gunned down? It seemed like a suicide mission. He wondered if the reason was the patriotic propaganda speeches that were constantly being given to these guys by communist leaders, or if it was their tanks, which he thought would have machine gunned anyone who turned around. Turns out it was the tanks that kept the soldiers charging. The Russian battlefield leaders had ordered the tank gunmen to shoot their own soldiers if they hesitated in their attack. If they even thought about retreating <laughs> fucking Russia. It is incredible how few fucks Stalin gave about his own people. Not even defending Russia here in this battle. They're, trying, they're fighting to try and take land they don't even need. They have so much of it already. Feeling very thankful right now that I wasn't born in Russia or anywhere near Russia at the beginning of the 20th century. Stalin was such a motherfucker. He ruined the lives of so many people. Uh, during this intense Russian offensive, Hawaha was given a squad of his own, a squad of his own, excuse me. The battle was fierce. The enemy you know, used its sheer numbers to break through Finnish forces. Simo recalled killing roughly 40 Russians in just this one day. They just weren't confirmed before the pressure of the battle became overwhelming and the enemy started to break through Finnish lines. And then Simo himself finally got shot. White death took an explosive bullet to the face, obliterating his jaw, part of his cheekbone. He bounced in and out of consciousness. Then he was put on a sled, dragged out of the battlefield. Then he lapsed into a coma and incredibly did not die. He woke up a week later on March 13th. And when he woke up, an armistice with Russia had already been signed. Finland had stopped Russia from invading most of Finland, but it did have to give Russia, Karelia, part of a land called Sala, and not all of Karelia, but a lot of it, and the northern uh, Rabaki Peninsula to Stalin. Currently, only 3,800 people living in the Finnish Sala. It's a very rural area. About 30 people live on the Rabaki Peninsula. It's a frozen shithole. So at least other than the land around uh, Lake Ladaga, they didn't have to give up you know, much other good land. Uh, months later, Simo described his final battle moments in a letter he wrote to a friend. He wrote, then there was March 6, 1940. I was in the dark forest of Osama. We were given, we were once more given a mission to counterattack one of many. We moved to our starting positions in early dawn, about five or six in the morning. There was a swamp, some 300 meters wide, which we managed to cross without difficulty as our own machine guns gave protection. Once over the swamp, we charged against the enemy that was really close to us. My rifle functioned very well. We were so close to the enemy that they were sometimes even only some two meters from me. The enemy was forced to withdraw, but some individual brave soldiers renamed behind or remained behind to cause havoc among us. Wow. Enemy was two meters away, roughly six feet away, where you could just step forward one step and touch him. Can you imagine fighting dudes that close trying to kill you? The older I get, the crazier war seems to me. Like, like action scenes in movies look so cool, you know, fight scenes look so cool. But can you imagine that in real life? I know we have a lot of veteran listeners. I know many of you have seen combat. And I just got to say, man, your bravery blows me away. Holy shit. I cannot imagine how intense that would be to have some dude just right there, just right next to you. Wants to kill you. A bunch of other dudes like that around, you know? Simo continues. He says, suddenly there was a shot from maybe 50 to 100 meters away. I felt I was hit. I only heard a suppressing sound. And I knew immediately that I was hit. I started to get this bright tunnel vision. that went closer and further back and forth. I felt a suppressed bang in my mouth. I lost consciousness. After some time, I woke up as one of our boys was turning me around by my arm, twisting me into a better position to give me first aid. I felt how my mouth was full of bone fragments and blood. The bullet had entered through the upper lip 
punctured my left cheek. The boys were yelling to the medics to get me, and I remembered how I started my journey to the rear of the lines in a man-towed lap sledge. I managed to stay conscious for maybe 300 meters before I blacked out. I did not wake up until March 13th, the day of the armistice, when I found myself in a military hospital a week after the battle. I think I was in such bad shape that they really did not believe they could rebuild this man, but here I am after all. A lap sledge, by the way, is a long, uh, low-slung, small like toboggan used in uh, sport or for transport pulled by a dog or a skier or in Lapland pulled by a reindeer. At some point during the battle, Simo was actually declared dead. And this is, here's an account from one of his relatives given years later. When Simo was wounded during the Russian charge on Finnish positions, he was taken away and placed on a pile of those killed in action. So there's various stories for how he was taken out of this battle. Uh, Simo's squad leader, as is fitting for like a mythological type dude. Uh, Simo's squad leader started to wonder where he was and asked around. Nobody seemed to know, could not answer. The squad leader said, we won't leave until we find him. They started an intensive search. And when the squad leader went closer to the pile of bodies, he saw a boot making a barely noticeable movement beneath the, beneath the pile. He moved some of the bodies away and found the wounded Simo under the pile. Holy shit, just laying at the bottom of a pile of dead men, face blown off with an exploding bullet, and he lives. And, and again, like with all legends, you know, there's, there's more accounts of some of these kind of moments. In another version, it was a member of the Women's Auxiliary Services who noticed the movement of the boot, uh, you know, under the pile of bodies. Another story tells about how a soldier asked some men to help him carry Sima away from the pile. And that's when he noticed that Sima was still alive. Sima was then transferred to a local aid post for first aid, transferred further from there, taken away. Uh, when he was taken away, the squad leader demanded, make sure that Sima was taken quickly to the hospital and gets the best possible treatment. Everybody loves this guy. Simo reaches the medics just in time to receive life-saving first aid. The worst bleeding was reduced, although they could not entirely stop it. The medics used a lot of bandages, cotton wool. His legendary sniper's rifle was left on the battlefield. Sadly, no one uh, was able to salvage it. The priority was taking Simo to safety. As pressure from the enemy was hard, the lines were broken and the Finnish troops were in disarray. Simo's transported by one of those lapsed sledges and various vehicles along a pre-planned evacuation route. Finally admitted to a hospital in central Finland to receive surgical treatment. When those responsible for awarding decorations were finally convinced that Simo was alive, he was immediately awarded the Kula Cross. After undergoing a number of complex surgical operations, he was transferred to Helsinki, which following the end of the Winter War was no longer under danger of Soviet air attack. Here he received further treatment. The explosive bullet that caused Simo's wound was actually technically illegal, not that the Russian soldiers gave a fuck. Uh, it was forbidden under this St. Petersburg Declaration of 1868 to use exploding ammunition. Uh, the decision to use exploding bullets was likely made by a Russian commander who wanted to maximize the firepower of his assault troops, you know, just give them the best ammo uh, they could use against soft targets. Simo's injuries left him in tremendous pain. Near death, he lost numerous teeth, part of his jawbone. His jaw had to be reconstructed, rebuilt using bone taken from his hip, about 10 centimeters worth. He was unable to speak or eat for three to four months, could only drink fluids and soups until dentures were made for him. Then he, he ended up uh, going through a total of 26 surgical operations could have died during many of them. In later interviews, Simo always pointed out the importance of good physical strength when it came to why he survived. There's no doubt that had he not been in top-notch physical condition, he could not have accomplished what he did, nor would he, he been able to recover from the wounds he suffered. Uh, after all those surgeries, he was left severely disfigured. There's numerous pictures of Simo online. It looks like he you know, must have been in pain for the rest of his life, but he never complained, at least not publicly. Simo was released from the military hospital to civilian life on May 19th, 1941. Simo did not participate in the continuation war as the latter part of World War II is known in Finland. More on that in a bit. Instead, he carried on in his life uh, as a farmer. Uh, but before we get to that, let's back up the timeline just a bit, about a year. A peace treaty between Finland and the Soviet Union was signed in Moscow on March 12th, 1940. 
Finland welcomed a return to peace, even though, like I said, it had to give up, you know, a lot of territory along its southern and eastern borders to the Soviet Union. But then Finnish intelligence reports soon indicated this new peace is not going to last long. Fucking Russians. They didn't care about what bullets you're supposed to use in battle, and they didn't care about treaties. Many Finns believed that the Soviet Union was only halting its aggressive behavior temporarily and would not stop until all of Finland was under communist control. Consequently, Finnish political and military leadership concluded that Finland could not risk being caught unprepared once again, right? To put some money into getting some supplies. August 18th, 1940, Finland was informed that Germany was willing to provide weapons for Finland's defense. Oh my heck, yikes. Making a deal with the Nazis, inviting one devil into your home to keep another devil out. Uh, Finland would be criticized by some for aligning with the Nazis, you know, at this point in the war. But Finland would explain that it only did this to keep Russia from motherfucking them into communist oblivion. Like I said last week, sometimes war is hell. And sometimes when you're in hell, you got to make a deal with the devil. On September 12th, 1940, Finland and Germany signed a so-called transit agreement, allowing German troops to, you know, move uh, unhindered through Finland in exchange for aid to help Finland, you know, be defended from Russia. Meanwhile, in 1940, Simo continues to recover from his wounds slowly and steadily, you know, regains his strength, begins his life anew. What he wanted most was to live in peace and quiet, far away from the memories of violence and war. Accordingly, following the war, he, he, gets, he runs a farm, does some forestry work in the village of Utula. Of course, people knew of his reputation and deeds of courage, but Simo wanted to be left alone, just live a normal life far away from public attention, preferring to concentrate on the things he considered most important in life, you know, farming, hunting, spending time with his family, fishing, uh, breeding hunting dogs. In his mind, according to interviews, he, he felt that after narrowly escaping death, he gained a second chance on life and he wanted to make the most of it. Such a practical dude. Such a During the short interval of peace between the end of the Winter War in March 1940 and the beginning of the Continuation War in June 1941, a proposal was made to award Simo Hawa the Mannerheim Cross, highest military award you can get in Finland. Colonel Entero Svensson, suggested in February 1940 that Simo be awarded the Man Mannerheim Cross for, for the following pretty blunt reason. Maybe it just doesn't translate well into English, but it's written, uh, the famous sniper who destroyed with rifle and submachine gun fire almost a battalion of enemies during the Winter War, he got seriously wounded in his face during the last day of the war. Not, not a real poet, uh, Colonel uh, Svensson there. Why should Simo be given such a prestigious award, Colonel? He shoot a lot of people, got shot in the face at end. All right. Uh, March 6th, 1940, the day Simo was wounded. Not the last day of the Winter War. A little mix up on dates there by the colonel. Uh, June 1941, when Simo was out of combat, the war began, uh, or sorry, between Finland and the Soviets began again. It was a war precipitated by a Finnish attack on the Soviet Union, in the wake of Hitler's attack on the Soviets on June 25th. And the Finnish army used the current weakness of the Red Army to advance and take possession of some of those territories that had just lost in the Winter War that Simo fought in. So just take that, dicks. You didn't take that land. We just let you borrow it for a couple months. But then three years later, 1944, Finland forced to withdraw before the advancing Red Army. Dang it. They always got more dudes. The borders from 1940 are restored. Fucking Russia. Keep sending more troops. Uh, in this continuation war, Finland suffers 225,000 total casualties compared to 890,000 to 944,000 casualties for the Russians. And again, Russia just had so many people that considered expendable. Finland just couldn't hold them off forever. Simo volunteered to fight in this continuation war, but they wouldn't let him because his wounds were too serious. He hadn't recovered enough. So he's placed on the horse call-up board where he did uh, the work of choosing suitable horses and vehicles for military use. During the continuation war, Simo also worked on his farm. His family had been evacuated. 
When the front lines uh, moved back eastwards towards Lake Latica, though, it was possible for him to go home again. After the Continuation War, the Lapland War took place. That involved chasing Germans uh, out of northern Finland. So many wars. After the end of World War II came the era of war reparations, and Finland kind of got fucked here. Since Finland had chosen to align itself with the Nazis at the end of the war, it got put on the Allied Powers naughty list, which is a bummer, since Finland only aligned with Germany to keep Russia from fucking them up. They were just, they were, you know, situated right next to these two horrible nations. And now since the Soviet Union was technically a friend of the Allied Powers during the war, they were on the good guys list. So communist Finns who had evaded the, a war, the war now climbed out of their holes, hiding places. They took their place, you know, alongside the veterans, usually questioning the value of these guys' sacrifices. These commies were constantly looking for a chance to provide info to Soviet spies and the Allied Control Commission, which now resided in Finland after the war. The purpose of this commission was to monitor and make sure that the naughty Finns weren't doing stuff they weren't supposed to. Make sure that they were they're not arming up again to do something crazy and Nazi-like, like try to defend themselves from Russian aggression. The Allied Control Commission was supposed to be supervised by British, uh, by you know, uh, by Britain and Russia, but in reality, Britain really just didn't you know involve themselves. So Finland ended up being put in the awkward position of being monitored by a commission ran by the country who got them into trouble and took some of their shit. It's, it's, it's like almost like, uh, like if you're in high school and a bully punched you in the face a couple of times. Some bully had a reputation for always punching so many people in their faces. And then you swung back one time to defend yourself and then a teacher saw that and gave you detention. And then for some reason, put the bully that had hit you in charge of making sure you didn't act up during your detention. This was what it was like for Finland after the war. It was insane. In this post-war environment, Finnish war veterans don't receive the respect they should from their own government. Because everybody's worried about, you know, what the, what the Russians are going to think about that. I don't think Simo cared, though. He, you know, he moved to go live with his brother on Juho's farm in 1946 uh, after the war, helping his brother run the farm, had a room of his own there until 1960, lived a simple farm life he'd wanted to live before the war, you know, or had lived, wanted to keep living. He was totally content. 1961, Simo found himself getting bothered by Russia again, fucking Russia, right? They kept adjusting the, the Finnish-Soviet border. The municipality of Ratchavari was bisected in a land dispute that at least wasn't fought over this time, but then Simo's home ended up being on the wrong side on the Russian side. I mean, I mean, can you imagine having the Soviet Union for a next door neighbor? That sucks so bad as a government and, and as a neighbor. The USSR, such a piece of shit. I mean, like, they'd be like the kind of neighbor that would order a new fence and then just casually start putting on the new fence like 10 feet inside your property line. Just say, hey, what, what are you doing? Hey, you're on my property now. Oh, no, it's no way. It cannot be. I know this is my property, but you know, it's okay. I'm a nice guy. I put fence up, you know, further back inside my property. i let you have extra. No, fucker. Now you just moved it five feet back and you're still five feet onto my property. Now you're just stealing less of my property. Come on, dude. Come on, Russia. Just let me have it. Let me have it or I fucking take everything from you. Uh, Simo could have remained as a refugee in his native municipality where he would, uh, you know, still own some forest land, but he didn't want to live in Russia. So the Finnish government gave him some land in the village of Utula in a neighboring municipality as compensation for the farm that Russia took from him. So that, that's good. Simo went right back to work on his new land, farming, forestry, all kinds of outdoorsy stuff, you know, probably killing lots of small woodland creatures. Did it all himself, never married, never had kids. Grew enough grain for his own use and also enough to sell. Plus he grew hay for horses, took care of the, the forest and two other parishes. Forest harvesting, other timber work was extra hard since he wasn't using a chainsaw or any other modern tools out there splitting, splitting, you know, falling down trees with an ax, splitting up that wood. He loved it. He just kept working outdoors, hunting, living on the farms until the mid-70s when he was in his mid-60s. 
In the mid-70s, he bought a studio apartment in Rastila, tiny town in the center of a municipality that uh, looks looks like a word that somebody made up. Rohokalakalakti. I don't know. Spent his summers for the next two decades on a farm belonging to a friend. Simo visited the farm quite often. Even continued to shoot. There's a little bit of hunting, light hunting until the 1990s, mostly with an air rifle, though. Simo always took care of his physical condition by walking, sweating his balls off, and finished saunas. In the early 90s, when he was still in fairly good shape, in his early 90s, Simo used to drive around in a little yellow Volkswagen Beetle. On December, December 17th, 1999, he celebrated his 94th birthday. Brigadier General Kari Hitanen was one of the many visitors who came to pay their respects. A ceremony in Simo's honor was held at Hotel Simon uh, Lamohavi. When, uh, here, Simo was awarded the Gold Medal of National Defense on behalf of the Kiri Regional High Command. It's reported that the great Finnish hero was in a good mood and fine health. Brigadier General Hitanen uh, uh, personally wrote a poem for Simo, the last verse which describes Simo's wounding, particularly touching. The poem is more or less untranslatable, but the following gives an idea of what it was about. <laughs> it's kind of weird how it comes across in English, actually. A petite man from Karelia surfaced like a mushroom after a spell of forest rain, reserved and composed known as Simo Haiha. A steady hand ensures a certain hit during the grim war winter. Losses grated the young soldier holding this country and his people so dear. Therefore he lay in the snow under enemy fire near. A stranger, enemy lulled by the warmth and safe glow of the bonfire killed by the bullet. <laughs> Here it gets pretty dark. A countless number of hits, split skulls, concealed shot from the winter white forest, a squad in the snow with no return, the air heavy with bullets, dense with shrapnel, the horrible feeling of the hit in his head, the cheekbone tearing, the bullet exploding, overwhelmed, swallowing red blood, tilting his head, closing his eyes, spitting blood and bone, out of breath, not yet ready to let go of life, the pain takes over, grip of death, now ready to go under, the dark ensues, but with the helping hand and a firm grip, the sledge moves through the forest alley of wood to rescue. With the crooked mouth and one cheekbone missing, a less composed character would be lost. But now his steady hands lift the blued rifle barrel, ensuring certain prey for the hunter. Jesus! Kind of a dark poem for dude's 94th birthday. Can <laughs> you imagine being around for something like that? Hey, I uh, just want to read a quick little poem for our birthday boy, guest of honor. <clears throat> Before you were all old and peaceful, man, you really used to get after it. You put so many bullets in people's skulls and left them all dead and shit. I know this guy seems quiet now and frail and totally harmless, but when he was young, he'd take out a machete and hack off your limbs until you were totally armless. So raise your glasses and let us toast our birthday boy today, a guy who motherfucked the Russians to hell and made them pay and pay and pay. Anyway, uh, who wants to hand out some cake? Simo's health started to deteriorate significantly in uh, 1999. His doctor said it was due to him being old as fuck. He was 93. Then on April 1st, uh, 2002, uh, Simo Hayaha died in a war veteran's nursing home at the age of 96. And I think I uh, kind of uh, skipped uh, there in the timeline. Now I'm just in my own head. Oh, yeah. He was 94, December 17th. And then he was, oh, okay. Um, yes, his, his health started to deteriorate a little bit before his birthday there. I just, the way I, I wrote it, I was, what's going on? Attention to detail. What would Simo Hayaha say about this? Then on April 1st, 2002, Simo Hayaha died in a war veteran's nursing home at the age of 96. Or at least that's what the staff thought. When they started wheeling him out of the home on a stretcher, he yelled, April Fool's motherfuckers! And they shot two other nursing home residents. Both one shot, one kill, headshots. 
And one was actually at another nursing home, half a mile down the road. No scope. Of course, that's nonsense. He was very old and he died. He died peacefully. And that takes us out of our time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Man, what a talented and humble dude Simo was. Still considered by many to be the, or maybe most, to be the greatest sniper of all time. How could somebody get that good at shooting? Let's break down this guy's skills. Cold will and discipline. According to several sources, Simo had excellent self-discipline, self-control, and a drive to do his job. If Simo was unable to destroy the enemy with his first attempt, he kept trying. He would try different approaches, methods, and actions until the work was done. Perseverance, man, the man had no quit in him. Uh, logic and experience. By the beginning of the Winter War, Simo was already an experienced marksman and hunter. Now, he, he was in his 30s, early 30s. He knew both his strengths, his own need for further development as well. He was highly logical, seemed to predict the intentions and movements of the enemy. Uh, stealth, as a sniper, everything depends on stealth. Simon was, or uh, Simon, Simo uh, was an expert at hiding his movements. The enemy never saw him. He would even put snow in his mouth to cool his breath so he couldn't be seen. Attention to detail. Uh, yeah, which goes to preparation. You know, Simo was always prepared, carried enough ammunition for his missions. His normal load was 50 to 60 rounds. In addition, he carried several hand grenades, which he referred to as Ranger's Sparks. Not known if he ever used those grenades in combat. Also not known why the hell he called them Ranger Sparks. Bravery and self-confidence. Another part of Simo's, uh, uh, Simo's success was his confidence in his own abilities. He knew his own strengths, weaknesses, was comfortable with where he was at. He was an award-winning sharpshooter, hunter, and skier who was in immaculate physical shape. He did not need to boast about his abilities to anyone, but to be fair, Finnish folks, not keen on boasting in general. And he was, uh, you know, uh, where he lived, the Karelian. According to Simo, such behavior would not be respected amongst that breed of Finns, the Karelians. Uh, Simo's legendary skills were partly natural, but also came from the muscle memory of rigorous practice. On numerous occasions, he practiced the secrets of precision shooting at the range with live ammo, at home, tested and trained in various shooting positions. He also trusted his weapon. You know, he knew his weapon. He, he bought, you know, bought his rifle with his own money, trained, hunted it with for years be, between his civil guard service and the winter wars. Knowing one's own rifle, one of the most important details in shooting. Every rifle has its individual strengths and flaws. Even those of the same model differ. The accuracy of the rifle, the trajectory of the bullet, together with the adjustment of sights, vary from one rifle to another. Simo knew himself, his equipment, his subordinates, his squad members were from the same home village. Simo trusted them. They trusted him. Proved a solid foundation to a successful leadership. You know, he also knew the battlefield well, seemed to know his enemy. These are all the ingredients of success according to the Chinese war strategist Sun Tzu and his battlefield guide, The Art of War, as well. Uh, his character and physical condition, Simo respected the Russians as human beings who fought for their own nation, never underestimated their ability to fight. When asked if he felt hatred towards the Russians for attacking his homeland, he promptly answered no. Simo explained what he, uh, that he only concentrated on ensuring that his weapon was well-supported and stable. He said, I always took full sight. I took steady aim at the middle of the target. I felt nothing towards the enemy. I shot and reloaded as long as there were enemies present. I shot whenever I saw the enemy. I did not care if he was a leader or not. Simo approached his role as a sniper as if he was at the shooting range. You know, as if he was just shooting at paper targets. He did not let his feelings affect him in any way, preferring to concentrate on securing the best possible shooting performance. Man, I feel like that ingredient right there is what took him from a good sniper to legend. The ability to completely shut off emotion. That's some robot shit. Like he was the T-800 Terminator or something. 
He always stressed the importance of good physical condition as well, remarking without really good fitness, it's just impossible to be a sniper. Makes sense. My cardio alone would keep me out of sniping. You know, right now, I, I wouldn't be able to control my breathing. If I had to walk 10 feet up any kind of incline, I'd be like, all right, I got to wait at least two minutes before I try and shoot somebody. Uh, obviously, there was something special about Simo's aim. He had some, you know, uh, natural talent. Simo's weapon was zeroed for the most common combat distance of the time, 150 meters. He kept the sights adjusted at 150 meters as it enabled him to rapidly adjust to the proper setting as needed. According to him, most of his kills were made on distances ranging between 100 and 150 meters. He aimed middle, uh, you know, fast, accurately. Simo always took a careful sight at the enemy, but wasted no time admiring the target. He shot quickly, knowing that the sharp aim at the target only lasts for a moment. Using too much time resulted in the eye being tired, blurring the field of vision, which would naturally not improve the probability of hitting the target. Again, the dude was a fucking robot. He just simplified the process to the best way and then never overthought it after that. Right? What's the most effective, quickest way I can do this? Well, I'm just going to do that. And I'm just going to try and replicate it over and over again. No major tweaks, just refinement. Uh, gun maintenance in times of peace. Simo uh, always cleaned his gun immediately after daily training was concluded or whenever he thought it was necessary. In his opinion, the most important part of sniping was the proper maintenance of the barrel, chamber, and bolt. He typically cleaned the stock and other wooden parts with the cloth several times a day as they could easily become soiled with dirt and snow in the conditions he was fighting in. This was the case especially when the enemy tried to kill Simo with an anti-tank gun, infantry gun, or by artillery fire concentration. He camouflaged his gun with a white gauze bandage, which from time to time needed an inspection and replacement. When it came to his weapon, he inspected everything. Oh, yeah, that's nothing to do with camouflage. Man, he would just like completely white it out, hidden in the snow. Uh, when it came to his weapon, he inspected everything, sights, cleanliness with the barrel, bolt, feeding ramp, never had a jam. He was also an expert at field zeroing, which is the ability to zero one's rifle, check the actual impact in the battle. Uh, there was something that the Civil Guard taught their sharpshooters. During combat, Simo concentrated on destroying the enemy. Whenever there was a lull in battle, he checked the zeroing of his rifle. During interviews, he often mentioned with the grin how he checked his zeroing by shooting at small, snow-covered treetops because it was easy to see the impacts when you would shoot at the snow. Sometimes that method was not possible, so he used stumps of trees, you know, located at suitable ranges on the battlefield. When asked how often he zeroed his weapon, he remarked always when I had a reason to do so. Uh, Simo's hunting experience helped uh, his sniping immensely. When he hunted, he acted as a visitor in the forest, believing that one could not just enter nature's domain and take something from it. Rather, he felt that you were only entitled to take something from nature if you're willing to be a part of it. He was a thoughtful hunter, only shooting from a distance where he was sure to obtain a kill. He had a healthy respect for animals and their right to live. During the Winter War, his prey was a thinking, calculating fellow human being. Any miscalculation could cost him his life. Simo was an expert at utilizing sound, smoke, artillery fire, other factors to cover his movements when changing positions to not be seen. Simo's peacetime training saw him rise to corporal. His leadership skills had been observed during a conscript period and training and in military review exercises. He had no intention or ambition of having a military career, but he was able to become a good leader. You know, his, his leadership skills were duly noted during his later wartime career. He led by example. He did his work extraordinarily well. His leadership skills may have been one of the reasons that his comrades were so keen to find him when he was wounded. Uh, using the terrain was another part of what made him good. During the Winter War, maps were scarce. Some officers, such as company commanders, might have had maps, but lower-ranking officers hardly had uh, maps, nor did the snipers. On the battlefield, the essential maps must be carried in one's own head, and Simo learned this very fast. He learned his area of operation in detail. He could memorize it. He could utilize the terrain to his advantage in the best way possible. He was an experienced trekker, just as were many others of his time. His father was an experienced hunter who had taught Simo the basics of using the terrain to find game. 
An animal in the forest tries to hide and escape from the hunter by utilizing the shelter of the train in the best way possible. Simon knew that. He knew that humans would do the same. He tried to avoid exposure to the enemy by maneuvering to his pre-selected firing positions under the cover of darkness. I mean, every fucking detail he paid attention to. Uh, Firing positions. He was clearly ahead of his time when it came to planning and preparing firing positions. He favored natural hiding places that needed no alterations. If alterations or other preparations were needed, he did it with the utmost care to ensure everything blended into the surroundings. When preparation was necessary, he carried it out during evening hours. An example of such preparation is that he often soaked the ground in front of his position with water so that his muzzle blast would not expose his location by disturbing the light snow. We mentioned that. He was inquired many times whether Simo ever camouflaged his fire positions in any way. His usual answer was never. Snow provided all the camouflage he required. Uh, There's some other aspects. You know, one could easily assume that Simo never ate or drank while waiting in the firing position. This was not the case. He would take little sugar lumps out to firing positions or rye crisps. Uh, one could silently chew them and maintain the proper sugar balance in the body <laughs> needed. Like he just treated himself like a machine. It seemed, you know, he, he wouldn't drink anything uh, when he'd work. He, he wouldn't bring like thermal bottles because they weren't available for every soldier to drink in at that time. And any other type of container would have just froze solid as the temperatures were so low. I don't know. Maybe he just fucking drank melted snow. Maybe he was a cyborg that didn't require, you know, to be his thirst quenched. And then the last thing that helped him was his height. You know, a sniper definitely benefits from being small stature. As a relatively short man, Simo could better utilize the shapes of the forest to his benefit where a sturdier, clumsier man could not go or fit. Small man, more difficult to detect. Snow and soft terrain also offer more support to a small and lighter man than a sturdier one. Due to his small size, he could utilize natural hiding place. I just, this just keeps reminding me of like Reverend Dr. Joe. I think Joe could be a great sniper. You know, Joe, how tall are you? Are you, are you like four, 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 six? A real answer? Real answer. Oh, five, nine. Okay. All right. Four, nine. Sorry. <laughs> Thank, okay. That makes me happier. <laughs> Why do I want you to be such a little guy? I don't know. I thought he was a little guy. He's a fine little guy. It doesn't help. Like, I work with giants. <laughs> you and Dan are, are, you and Zach are fucking huge. I know. <laughs> and it's just me. It's like, who? Oh, look at me. Someone carry me into the restaurant. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. To wrap, to wrap up. Love Joe. Uh, to wrap up, this guy was such a badass. He's thought to have killed between 500 and 800 Russians in 100 days of combat, average of five to eight a day every day. He and his Finnish comrades held off the much larger Russian army and weathered the drop down to 40 below. He would be named White Death, awarded his nation's highest military honors. The Russian forces, constantly baffled by Finnish marksmen and their issues dealing with the Finns, gave Hitler the confidence that his Nazis could take on the Russians, which helped Allied forces defeat a weakened, stretched too thin, fighting on two fronts Nazi army. Strangely, on the list of most, the most prolific snipers of all time, while uh, Simo sits at the top, the top 10 consists of nine Russian snipers, all with uh, over 400 kills apiece. Uh, I find his tale very inspiring. I'm inspired by how hard he worked to be the best sniper he could to help his country. I'm inspired by how he didn't let his sniper career define the remainder of his post-war life. He didn't uh, you know, let his facial injury define him either. He just seemed to operate on this awesome principle of, I want to do the job in front of me the best to my abilities. What if, what would the world look like if we all did that? If we all just worked really hard at what we already like to do? Uh, thank you for your brave and heroic service, Simo. Uh, I, I hope, I hope you're resting in peace. I'm sure you are somewhere. You were a calm dude in life. I don't know why you wouldn't be calm in some kind of afterlife. Uh, time now for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Simo Hauha killed between 500 and 800 enemy combatants and seems like a pretty well-adjusted dude after all that. He didn't kill out of hate or out of bloodlust. He killed because it was his job. 
He was protecting his homeland and just happened to be super good at it. I wish we had his brain to study. Number two, the winter war was what it sounded like. It was fucking cold, minus 20 to minus 40 you know, degrees at times. Haya achieved this crazy kill total while freezing his nuts off in the ice and snow, shoving ice in his mouth to keep his breath from giving away his position. Winter ninja. Number three, the winter war was a pivotal part of World War II. If the Germans hadn't decided to invade Russia, the world would look very different today. It might look, probably would look. The decision for the Nazis to invade came from Russia's inability to handle the Finns. And Haya was, uh, was the goddamn Michael Jordan of the Finnish team. Uh, so Simo Haya, you know, may have kind of saved the world. Number four, the Soviet government under Stalin has to be in the top five for the worst governments of all time. I mean, they shot their own soldiers if they retreated. They executed most of their good officers before the war started a communist paranoia. And, and, and I didn't even bring up the gulags. Number five, new info. Simo's the greatest sharpshooter in military history. Who's number two? Russian Ivan Sidorenko. Ivan Sidorenko, originally an artist and a college and high school dropout, taught himself how to be a sniper for the Red Army. He lived by the one-shot, one-kill ethos, became a one-man killing machine for the Soviet Union who would rack up some 500 single-handed deaths during World War II. Story goes that he started off as part of a mortar unit that helped load, unload, and reload long-range artillery. From there, he would go off on his own to shoot at Germans. After a while, he taught himself how to kill from a distance, and the Red Army soon took notice. He wanted to teach others how to kill in the same covert fashion he did. His students were hand-selected by commanders as men with great eyesight and knowledge of their weapons. Every man in his training you know, uh, made an immediate impact in the defense of Moscow. His troops were so deadly the Germans flooded the area with their own snipers to counter the threat, and it didn't work. Sidorenko and his men were just too skilled, and they just sniped the Nazi snipers. Sidorenko rose in rank to become the assistant commander of the 11th or uh, 1122nd Infantry Regiment at headquarters. While there, he trained more than 250 snipers, some of whom would go on to make record kills like himself. On June 4th, 1944, uh, Ivan uh, Sidorenko earned the title Hero of the Soviet Union for his prowess. And uh, did I call him Ivan earlier? I can't remember. I think Ivan. And like Simo, he lived a long and quiet life after the war. Became a coal mine foreman. Died in 1994 at the age of 74. Man, maybe that's the key to a long life, uh, being a sniper. I don't know. I do know, that's, I do know that's all for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So that's it. Simo Hayoha sucked. Now I need to figure out how to get to Finland. I really want to travel there. Try out those saunas. Thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to the birthday girl, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Camp, Reverend Dr. Joe, H.C. Paisley. Thanks to the Bit Elixir app design crew. Uh, hopefully got to have some new trivia thing here before too long. We'll beta test and some new stuff. Thanks also to Access Apparel. Big thanks to the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Access Apparel, now called the Spicy Club. So I guess thanks to the Spicy Club. If you want to meet more Time Suckers, I keep seeing more and more out in the wild. You know, join the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. More social interaction. Uh, if you want that, go to Time Suck Discord group. Uh, you can link to the, from the Time Suck app. Link for both in the episode description. Next week, back to true crime. Gonna start a two-week serial killer run. We're sucking on the happy face killer. Over the course of five years, from January 23rd, 1990 to March 10th, 1995, serial killer Keith Jesperson murdered eight women as he worked as a long-haul truck driver. Jesperson dumped the bodies of his victims all over the U.S., took a long time for law enforcement officers to realize a serial killer was responsible for a series of grisly strangulations at truck stops and rest areas. That is until someone else tried to take credit for one of his crimes, and this inspired the psychotic piece of shit to write letters to the media to take ownership of his murders. 
uh, also via rest stop graffiti. He signed all his confessions with a sm- simple smiley face, earning him the nickname of the happy face killer. Uh, the suck could also be called how to raise a serial killer 101 or worst childhood ever. The abuse this dude suffered at the hands of his family peers and in his, uh, and in his mind, society seemed to only cement his desire to revel in the pain of others. So, you know, uh, if he had the, you know, a terrible childhood, that means it's Steph Cox Kirby. Probably going to be making some cameos. Uh, Je- uh, his, the list of cruelty the happy face killer committed included grotesque animal abuse, arson, robbery, trying to blow up a teacher's house Rambo style, and at least two attempted murders before he was even old enough to drive. As an adult, he would satisfy his lust for rape and death at least eight times, although this perpetual liar would take credit for dozens of other murders, even linking himself to some of the Green River killer murders. By the time his killing spree ended, he would try and take credit for 160 murders. Echoes of the confession killers here. And it's all coming up next week on Time Suck. And now let's mosey over to today's Time Sucker updates. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. First one from Matthew Walkup writes, Suck Master General, my brother and I are having a dispute. Did the leadership of the Manhattan Project really execute death row inmates? My brother claims it was one of your jokes. I can't tell from the context. Also, if you do read this on the podcast, can you mention my brother Dave? He's a cool guy. And I know you two would get along great. Oh, that's nice. Hey, Lucifina, thank you. Regards, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Dave, you sound nice. And yes, I was making up that, that whole thing. Sorry, I know that was a little confusing. Uh, we got some other emails about that. It wasn't just the Humphrey Bogart part. It was that entire thing about executing death row inmates. That was all, that was all nonsense. That was all nonsense. Maybe I took that one too far. <laughs> now it feels fitting for Veterans Day. We got a chesty puller update. Awesome one from Time Sucker Alyssa Green, who writes... Dear Lord God, Master Sucker, he who will enter Nimrod's mighty ball sack, the holder of Bojangles' leash. I'm a loyal time sucker and recently a space as well. I've been trying to go back to all the episodes. Recently listened to the Chesty Puller Suck. I have a story I think would interest you, and I'd like to apologize for the length beforehand. I come from a military family. My mom and all three of my grandfathers had long military careers. Ah, well, thank them for their service. My mom was a Navy Corpsman. Her stepfather was a tanker in Desert Storm. Her biological father was part of the cavalry. My dad's father was a Marine of the Vietnam War. Wow, you do come from a military family. In June of 1968, my dad's father, my pops, as I refer to him, uh, fought Quezon, or fought at Quezon. This was during the Tet Offensive. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this battle, but it was gruesome. The estimated number were 6,000 U.S. Marines against some 40,000 North Vietnamese. He was the only person in his unit to survive. Wow. If you're interested in particular uh, details, uh, I'm happy to discuss more than happy to tell you, but for now, I'll bluntly say that my grandfather is a double amputee. He doesn't have either of his legs below the knees. One was blown off completely with a grenade. The other was so mangled, he had to cut what was left off with his Bowie knife. My God. Whew. Uh, why, yes, he's a badass. We're all quite proud of him. He was flown out to the Philadelphia Veterans Hospital after this to treat gangrene, probably take care of his stubs. He stayed there for a long while to recover. It was during this time he recalls one of his most fond, or one of his fondest memories of being a Marine. The whole wing of the hospital he was in had by this point, uh, let their hair grow out and, and, and we're all, you know, together. He says, and we're all together out of regs. But then they heard that the leg- legend Chesty Puller himself would be coming to visit the hospital. They all cut their hair, ironed their uniforms, shaved their faces that night. Chesty came to shake their hands and thank them for their sacrifices. My pops was one of those to shake that glorious man's hand. He says at this point, Chesty looked small and you could tell age was kept catching up to him. He looked almost beaten but that didn't diminish the respect his presence commanded one damn bit. This is a story my dad told me growing up. He raised my brother and I with deep respect for our men and women in uniform. 
Even if you don't support the fight itself, you should support those who do the fighting, they risk, and oftentimes give up a great deal. However, during the episode that I realized he hadn't come to that hospital for the sole purpose of shaking the hands of wounded Marines, he was there to visit his son, which explains why he looks so defeated. It's one thing to get hurt, but it's another thing entirely to watch someone you love get hurt. My pop, that's right. Now I'm remembering that. Got the chills from me. I remember that from that episode. Forgot about that part. My pop is still alive. I've gained enough trust to hear some of his war stories. And let me tell you, Vietnam was uglier than ugly. And while I say, and while I may not serve in the armed forces myself, I'm a military brat and your support doesn't fall on deaf ears. My mom listens to Time Suck with me and she thinks, thanks you for your support. She also says she worries about you <laughs> because of the fake stories. Ah, and while by no means uh, you have to, uh, I think she get a kick out of the out of a shout out. Well, shout out for mom. Her name is Tanja Green. Shout out for Tanja. And while in service, everyone called her Mama Green. Thank you for sucking hard. Keep sucking all the dark, weird, and badass knowledge holes. We love to follow you down. Hail Nimrod. Praise good boy Bojangles. Hail Lucifina. Glory be to Michael motherfucking McDonald. Keep on sucking you magnificent evolutionary achievement. P.S. We'd love to have you come down to Charleston. Well, thank you, Alyssa Green. Hopefully I'll get to Charleston one of these days, or at least close. And big thanks to your family and to uh, to Mama Green. Happy Veterans Day. Okay, now an important nuclear uh, update from Cat Bates. Sorry if this comes through twice. The site refreshed. Weird. Uh, okay, it's, it's all right, Kat. Okay. Uh, Greetings, Master Sucker, and the rest of you dungeon dwellers. Listen to the most recent episode on the Manhattan. Something caught my ear is a little off. You're in the top five takeaways. When talking about how awesome it is that we now have nuclear energy, you made the statement that nuclear power has zero carbon emissions. I scratched my head a little. Zero being a very small amount of emissions. After a little poking around on the internet, I couldn't find a source that I both understood and trusted, but do feel confident that claiming zero emissions while not explicitly false isn't exactly true either. You're right that the actual use of uranium in a reactor does not release carbon, but uranium is a huge pain in the ass to make. It needs to be mined, go through numerous refining processes. Later, after fuel pellets are used up, they need to be stored securely, also a pain in the ass, considering not only hazardous, but so hazardous they need to be guarded. All of this effort requires energy. I'm open to the possibility that in the future, nuclear energy could be used to power all the equipment needed at the different stages of the process and the construction of the facilities required, but I'm pretty sure that we're not there yet. Nuclear power cleaner than oil or coal? Yes, most certainly, but that does not mean that it is zero carbon energy or a zero carbon energy source. I know similar issues exist with renewable energy sources as well. As far as I know, the only truly zero carbon way to live is to eat wild fruits and berries, never build a fire and sleep on the ground. Barring that, as a lover of hot food, my car, having a heated home, etc., I think it's really important that we recognize that pretty much nothing we do in this modern world is without some environmental impact. And be honest with ourselves about what those impacts are. Sorry, my first time reaching out is critical. I've been sucking for a few years now, a huge fan. I appreciate how much work you put into keeping the show unbiased. Excuse me, when opinions or personal ideas come up, it is clear that they are your own, not some regurgitated cookie cutter bullshit. Uh, I'm just as likely to think, oh, fuck yeah, as I am to think, nah, hell no, while listening, which is great. And I love that. Yeah, don't agree with me. Uh, that'd be fucking weird if you guys agree with me all the time. I say a lot of weird shit. You have stretched my mind by both making me think and by shoving all kinds of weird information in there. If you keep on sucking, I'll keep on spreading the suck. Mad respect. Cat P.S. Have you touched on planned obsole uh, obsolescence? like being obsolete, obsolescence, I think is how you, in any episodes. It seems related to this topic. I'd love to hear how you present it. I have not thought about that. Hopefully I'm saying that word right. I don't want to say obsolete. I don't know about obsolescence. That sounds right. And you're right. You're right. Uh, that was, you know, it's funny. I, as I was going to my notes, I was like, hmm, zero. I kind of, then I moved past it, whatever, but you're right. Technically in, in that, in, in the final stage, no carbon emissions, 
But yes, to get to that stage, carbon emissions. And so that is a good thing to bring up, which is why through this message in there, thank you for, for the attention to detail. I love that. Thank you, Cat Bates. Uh, fascinating update to an update from Guy Green, who writes, please, oh, suck Lord, hear this. Since you read your listener's question about your inclination to sympathize with a serial killer who preyed on pedophiles and rapists, I thought it was my duty as a member of the cult of the curious to inform you, dear leader, that such a man exists. His name is Pedro Rodriguez Filo, a.k.a. Pedrino Matador, a.k.a. Killer PT. Despite having killed at least 71 people, many of them fellow inmates, he is today a free man due to a quirk in Brazilian law that stipulates a maximum of 30 years, oh yeah, behind bars. He was a product of extreme violence, but somehow perceived the injustice of it and sought to balance out the evil of this world in his way. Pretty impressive by any measure, especially considering his circumstances. To be fair, he didn't exclusively kill sexual predators, though he liked to, but he did prefer to kill such people. He killed gang leaders, drug dealers, wife beaters. He loved to prey on criminals. He purportedly devoted his life since uh, his release to Jesus and keeping underprivileged kids out of gang life. He has an active YouTube channel to this day. What the fuck? Google him. Well-deserving of a full-blown suck. Sorry to bother you. No, not at all. You didn't bother me, but I thought you should know. I'd supply more info, but I don't have assistance, horse cocked or otherwise. <laughs> I'll give you what I have when, uh, up to you to do with it. Love and angst, Guy. Well, thank you, Guy. Man, we got to put Joe, Joe Paisley, make, make a note. Pedro Rodriguez Filho, please make a note. Put it on my desk, if, if you will, uh, somebody out there. Because I, I do want to add this guy to the topic list. That is fascinating. Right, is that is that is anyone anyone oh, here? Yeah, I, I oh, hear oh, you. Okay, good, good. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, okay. Now we have Lauren Smith with the Manhattan Project update. I love all the extra info coming this week. Lauren writes, "Hail and well met, Sultan of the Suck. Love the episode. Was glad to find out more I didn't know about it, but I felt the need to inform you of another scientist who is part of the Manhattan Project, who I feel needs mentioning. I'll try to do it without cursing." Tommy fucking Dowd. Nope, couldn't do it. The guy was a scientist in the Manhattan Project as well as an audio engineer. Reverend Horsecock Paisley should especially be a fan of him. He invented the idea and construction of vertical faders on soundboards. Before he created that, it was all doorknobs and hard to actively mix levels. He was a crucial engineer uh, for so many uh, things, but I feel like the most noteworthy was Layla. Oh, so many songs. Uh, But I feel like the most... Noteworthy was Layla by Derek and the Dominoes, a.k.a. Eric Clapton. Wow. Layla. Thought you should know. Found about him when I went to college for audio engineering. Keep on sucking. Regards, Lord Lauren Smith of Sealand. Knight of Sensible Castle and starving musician. Well, thank you, Lauren Smith. I'm also a knight of Sealand. Yay. We're knight brothers. Uh, Another sucker has been knighted. And finally, last one, Church of Satan update. Very interesting, thought-provoking. This was sent in by Mike Moffat. And Mike writes, hey, Dan. For several years, I taught a high school introduction to religious studies and included occasionally looking into LeVay's Satanism. I was eager to hear your research and commentary and appreciated much of what you said. In particular, I was glad to hear that you reached the conclusion that Satanism, in the, you know, LeVayan Satanism, is not a religion per se, but rather an anti-religion. I encourage you to take it a step further. Satanism is ironically also anti-human. I'll explain why. Satanism is swirling in a whirlpool of irony. First, Satanism ironically owes its existence as much to Jesus Christ, as LeVay suggests, as Christianity owes its success to Satan. Satanism's indebtedness reaches beyond Jesus, of course, who spoke in no uncertain terms about Satan, but also to innumerable cultural phenomena linked to Christianity, whether or not they are grounded in the Bible, which is another topic altogether. These include values like compassion, recall LeVay's disgust with the notion of turning the other cheek, and purity. To call Satanism reactionary is an understatement. The only reason it could exist is in reaction to what preceded it in the Abrahamic religions, 
Interestingly, he would not also include Vedic religions like Hinduism or Buddhism, among others. Thus, LeVay should thank God, or at least Christians, Jews, and Muslims for giving him a color palette from which to paint his starkly contrasting picture. Second, the irony of Satanism claims of truth of being authored by a bona fide compulsive liar cannot be overlooked. I appreciate how you highlighted this irony throughout your episode. LeVay and his Satanism belong much more fittingly in the company of Barnum Circus than in a dialogue with religious worldviews, theology, or spirituality. I did not know LeVay had been a carnival worker before, his more infamous time founding Satanism, but I found it enormously revealing. The notion of delighting people with illusion is clearly the foundation for the structure LeVay built. Uh, on P.T. Barnum, when is that suck going to happen? Yes, I know that would be a great suck. Third, of course, is LeVay's choice to use the idea of Satan as his moniker. The Hebrew term Satan denotes an opponent, accuser, adversary. It is not a name, but rather a title. In this way, LeVay chose the right term, but only uh, denote, denote denotively. The connotation of Satan is, of course, red guy with horns and tridents, and LeVay knew this. Thus, the irony here is not the denotive, denotative, there we go, meaning, which is right on, but rather his choice to use it as a spiritual concept and entity for it. Had he, had he more atheistic integrity and called his movement opposers of religion or the like, he wouldn't have gotten the press he wanted, for which obviously he found his upstart. He was a capitalist to be sure, and like Barnum, he didn't care what product he peddled as long as he got him what he wanted. I do believe that. The world has rewarded him for his lies, as is our species sensationalistic tendency. And in the words of Jesus, he has received his reward in full. Finally, how is Satan, uh, Satanism ironically anti-human? I think you answered this yourself when you reflected on the undeniable and incomparable destructiveness of the human race on the one hand, while on the other, that human beings uh, remain your favorite of the creatures. Why is that? How could, you, how could your favorite also be the worst? Is it merely because as a human, you are wearing the home jersey? Or is there more to it? Is there something about human beings that transcends mere animalism, which makes our abuses of each other in the natural world all that much more heinous? If human beings are no more than meat sacks or similarly, similarly dirt bags, as another teacher I enjoy uh, calls us, then LeVay would have nothing to oppose, nothing to protest. He would be forced to see the behaviors of the other religious animals around him as objectively and unemotionally as lions and cheetahs, just two kinds of cat. As you say, no big whoops. He cannot claim that they were wrong per se, but just in competition for the same thing, for followers. But that is not what I see him nor in his writing doing. Rather, I see a highly emotionally charged human being, a child in a man's body, fleeing from his own pain, equipped with all the faculties that makes humans uh, human, morality, compassion, ego, self-awareness, reason, etc. And yet in order for Satanism to hold up, the very human characteristics that make it possible are what Satanism tries to deny. Compassion mixed with LeVay's intolerance for humanity is no compassion at all. Morality that begins and ends in the subjective human mind is no morality at all. The very idea of an organization with principles and rules that purports to allow its adherents to follow only their own principles and rules is perhaps the most absurd irony I've ever heard of. Satanism's claim to be pro-human by way of giving individuals absolute autonomy is ultimately anti-human. Humanity is a co-op, not a solo gig. That's a fucking great quote. Humanity is a co-op, not a solo gig. I love thinking uh, through this kind of thing critically, so thanks for the opportunity and the opportunity to procrastinate since this whole time I was supposed to be writing about something completely different. Peace, Mike. Thank you, Mike Moffat, for giving us so much to think about there for what a well-written piece. Man, I love humanity is a co-op, not a solo gig. Let's end on that thought with today's Time Sucker Updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. 
a great week, everyone. Again, happy Veterans Day. Happy birthday to my beautiful wife, Lindsay. Uh, don't piss off any teeny tiny Finnish men uh, who grew up with guns. And most importantly, how about you just keep on sucking? Come on, dude. It's, come on, I'm Russia. Just let me have it. Let me have it or I fucking take everything from you. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck.